Hi, it's Bob from Royal Spa. Soaking in a hot tub full of Epsom salts is the absolute best way to minimize everyday aches and pains. And we know all about Epsom salts at Royal Spa. Royal Spa hot tubs are the only hot tubs on the market that can safely and effectively use Epsom salts. Made right here in Indiana, Royal Spa hot tubs are the highest quality hot tubs on the market. Visit any one of our three Indianapolis locations or visit royalspa.com. Ah, Royal Spa. It is a Tuesday in Indianapolis where we dodged one bullet and I'm not going to say disastrous on another hand, but probably revert back a little bit, take a step backward on another one. And then something happened to me today that we talked about on the show probably six weeks ago, if that. And I was like, really? Okay. So there's plenty to talk about on a busy Tuesday. How are you? My name is Jake Query. This is Query and Company here on 93.5-1075 The Fan. Jimmy Cook is the president of the company, joins me each and every day. Eddie Garrison flies the controls for us as the CEO, and there's a lot going on. And we'll begin with what took place this morning. Jimmy, you got up at what time today? Got up about 9.30. So you would have missed the big breaking news as it happened. Correct. I had the notification on my phone instead. Eddie Garrison, you got up at what time today? I got got up at 8.30. So you also would have missed the big breaking news as it happened, right? Because I think it was just after 8 o'clock this morning, Rick Carlisle joined, as he does each and every, typically Tuesday, joined Andy Sweeney and Kevin Bowen on the wake-up call with KB and Andy, and... In discussing tonight's big game, big one for the Pacers at the Fieldhouse with the Denver Nuggets, the defending champions back in Indianapolis. And, of course, that was one of the teams that Indiana faced on their road trip out west, the first step after going to Atlanta, and a road trip that left them at 2-4 and on the trip. And we certainly know that just before the trip, Tyrese Halliburton had a hamstring injury. Then they went out west, and it was against in the penultimate game of that series – or excuse me, of that swing where Tyrese Halliburton played against Portland, then did not play against Phoenix, and with the Pacers set to take on Denver tonight. Rick Carlisle with this bit of news some four hours ago. Tyrese came back for the uh, Portland game, did well in the game, but we, uh, you know, our training staff wasn't comfortable with how he responded to that, and so... Um, we obviously sat him in the in the Phoenix game. We're gonna we're gonna sit him for the next three games. So that'll be tonight. Uh, it'll be Thursday, Friday against um, Philadelphia and Phoenix, uh, respectively. And then uh, we'll see where he's at on Saturday uh, and whether whether or not uh, Sunday against Memphis will be a possibility. But this is not a re-injury. This is just simply injury recovery management type stuff. Now, the key there is at the end. This is not a re-injury. And, I, you know, we'll believe Rick Carlisle was forthright with that information up front, so we will give him benefit of the doubt and believe that point, that it was not a re-injury, but rather, you know, it's entirely possible that I would think what happened. I'm not a trainer. I'm not an elite-level athlete under the age of 25, so I can't speak to either of perspectives. But, Jimmy, I would assume that what that means is the following, and that means that Tyrese Halliburton had the hamstring injury. They felt in the Portland game that he was ready to play. 
But what you can't predict until you go through it is how the body is going to respond from that re-entry of motion. And there was a point in the game and in the broadcast where Quinn Buckner noticeably pointed out that he had noticed that that Halliburton was favoring a little bit that hamstring. So was that re-injury, according to Rick Carlisle, not, but was it simply the fact that there was no way to know if, in fact, he was 100% at that pace and that intensity until he went through it, and therefore they went, you know what, we we – we wanted to take a look at it, and by taking a look at it, we decided, you know, it's like when a when an Indy car goes out, and they go, well, look, we have this particular setup, and we don't know how it's going to work until it gets out there in traffic, and you do a couple laps in it, and you go, yeah, we had the wrong setup. So we're going to bring it back in and reassess. That would be my assumption as to where we are. Now, I saw somebody earlier today, and I heard Kevin say also, you know, we as Indiana sports fans naturally default to – worst case scenario or precedent I, I, I'm a big believer in precedent and precedent takes place naturally speaking with fans when you hear of an injury to a favorite player or a key player that recurs then you start thinking about the precedent of people who have been in that situation previously and Jelani Woods for the Colts comes to mind totally different body structure than Tyrese Halliburton um, and probably physical conditioning to an extent. Somebody pointed out Malcolm Brogdon, which is fair because Malcolm Brogdon was missed a lot of games due to injury, except for this. I don't know specifically in the case of Tyrese Halliburton, but I'm under pretty strong suspicion this is accurate. I think this is the franchise saying to Tyrese Halliburton, we're going to err on the side of caution and we're going to park you for three games and then reassess. Malcolm Brogdon, who's a wonderful player and a nice guy and a very smart individual, Malcolm Brogdon is a very business-oriented guy that oftentimes it was Malcolm Brogdon that was pushing for that decision as opposed to the player. That's the difference. There were times where I think Malcolm Brogdon was like, hey, I need to, I'm not 100%. I got to miss this game or miss that game where he probably could have played. And, you know, you can never, when a player says, like, this is bothering me or I can't do this, can't do that, you know, you got to kind of trust the word. I think with Malcolm Brogdon, oftentimes it was player making decision. And in this case, it's organization making the decision. But in the grand scheme of things, what one hopes is that three, four, five games, me personally, Jimmy Cook, can you look up for me? How many games do the Pacers have left before the All-Star break? Because... We are 24 days, I believe it is, from the All-Star game. So we're left roughly three weeks from the All-Star break. And I know that you just got Pascal Siakam and you want to get a really good read on the way he plays with Siakam and you want Siakam to get as many reps on the floor with Halliburton as possible to salivate for him to resign and go long-term with the Pacers. I get all of that. But either one of you guys, do you have before you, how many games are left before the All-Star break? Go ahead, Eddie. 13. That's probably pushing it. But would you sit him for 13 games? If you do that, he misses all NBA. So that's just, I mean, I get it. Long-term health matters more than that, but he's ineligible for all postseason awards if he misses more than four games from here on He's out. already resigned, though, so that doesn't affect contractually, sure. right? It sure. does. 
Or there's probably he incentives has, in there I would he think has about. Escalator, escalators yeah, I guess you're right. yeah, to get yeah. up to whatever that number was, 255, 250 million. I think it's like 60 million, I think is what he gets if he makes all NBA this year. That's just a caveat, right? Like if if the and I think Tyrese, at least from his time here, if it was that serious of an injury where, hey, we need to shut you down till after the all-star break and we need you for the stretch run, I think begrudgingly he would be okay with that. But of course, if this was like a more serious injury or it comes out that, yeah, this is something where he's going to need to lay off of it, then you have no choice. But as it stands right now, if he misses, I think, and there's a couple wrinkles to it. Like if you play a minimum of 20 minutes, you can log two of those games towards the total. But if he misses four more games the rest of the season, not including the three already built in after these three, if he misses an additional four after that, he'd be ineligible for all end of year awards so 13 would be a little aggressive then right yes but let's say you go you know as my point being this if you're looking at it from a team standpoint i think the pacers clearly we know that with a healthy halliburton and and we we are assuming that with siakam and and by the time they mesh together that you know they're a top probably four or five team in the east maybe Without him for a while, they don't. That's not where they slot in terms of standings, but in terms of everybody pushing in, you know, like in the postseason, I think you still know that you have a chance to win a postseason series. Now, you you have to go back to, and I'm not sitting here trying to carry the Pacers' water. Don't get me wrong, but I think that it's important to remind ourselves of this fact. A year ago, just over a year ago, in probably would have been September, maybe early October. I get this invitation from the Pacers along with the local media. Jimmy, I can't, you may have been there. Probably not because it would have been actually probably during this time slot. I was doing the morning show at the time, but you know, Tony East was there and Chris Denary and you know, I mean, there were, there were probably 30 or 40 local media members there and it was like a meet and greet, Finger food, Q&A with Pacers Brass. And I thought, well, this is unusual. This was the beginning of last year's season. And while it was welcomed and while it was very cool, it was unprecedented. I had never seen that before with Pacers Brass. So I go, and Rick Carlisle, and Kevin Pritchard, you know, now that I think about it, Carlisle might not have been there. Kevin Pritchard definitely was. Chad Buchanan definitely was. And they're like, listen, we wanted to bring all of you guys and gals out to just kind of set the tone for what the year is going to look like. We are. We made the decision when we looked at Domas Sabonis and Miles Turner and the way that our team was playing. We just figured out that we were kind of stuck in neutral. And we decided to get aggressive and take our chance at making a deal. And Sabonis is a fabulous player, but in terms of the way that the style of play that we were playing with him, we probably had hit like kind of a ceiling. So we liked Tyrese Halliburton and made a move to get him. And we're very optimistic about how we can play and we really like Andrew Nimhard, who we got in the second round. And 
Well, I'll tell you what, Halliburton is a really good lob passer, and you're going to see a lot of guys playing above the rim. But what we're asking of you is to let our fan base know that we know that we are starting at the bottom and we are probably not going to win a lot of games at first because we are navigating our way through a process. And they were hesitant to say trust the process like Philadelphia had done, but they basically were saying just bear with us. And so people were like, okay. And here we are, not even, I mean, just over a calendar year from that, and we're like, oh, man, this is a blow towards being able to push into the playoffs. When in reality, the move for Siakam was made because the timeline was even accelerated by the development of young players and that process probably being a year ahead of schedule, which is great. And I totally get the frustration and the hesitation and the fear and the precedent of what it means to have Halliburton gone. But I think we need to remind ourselves that in reality, this is a good problem to have because it's like, man, whoever would have guessed 15 months ago that we'd be sitting here fretting about like the Pacers' postseason chances being affected by their franchise player missing some games. And as Carlisle said this morning, look, Tyrese Halliburton's probably going to play here for 10 years. You hope, knock on wood, and you hope that he's healthy enough to do that and that he remains on the same trajectory he is. But in the grand scheme of things, what you're looking at, Jimmy, is that you hope that this is just a bump in the road. That remains to be seen. But all, at this point, all signs point towards it being just that. Yeah, I mean, based on the diagnosis of where he's at and just the reports from the Pacers about it, this doesn't sound like something that's going to derail or fully end Tyrese Halliburton's campaign by any stretch. And I think where there might be some frustration from Pacers fans is where you get the crossover of Pacers fans, Colts fans. You've mentioned just other fans of franchises in this market where injuries have happened, shortcomings have occurred, and now it feels like it's translating back over to the Pacers a bit, especially when even though what was sold last year was there's going to be growing pains, you get off to that hot start right out of the gate, and then you end up having an injury to Halliburton that costs him a fair amount of games, and you look back with a lot of what-ifs last year, like had Tyrese Halliburton been out there, maybe that's a play-in team. Maybe that's a team that makes some noise and makes the playoff, and that's not Halliburton's fault. Injuries happen. What I will say about this three-game stretch, or if they have to add a fourth game, or however many games he misses, to your point about the Siakam trade, this is a guy that was averaging 22-6-5, basically, in Toronto. I get it that maybe you point to that and say, well, somebody's got to score the points. And yeah, that's fine. But he's still a talented player. He's a well-respected scorer in this league. What the Pacers need and what you have to examine with this roster for however many games Tyrese Halliburton is out for is do you think that Siakam can put up those type of numbers, being asked to put up those type of numbers over this stretch? And do you think the Pacers are better constructed than Toronto was? And I think the answer is yes. I think the Pacers are a better roster than what Siakam had, even when you include the brief couple games R.J. Barrett and Emmanuel quickly, I think the Pacers are a better roster than Toronto. And so you would think inherently that the Pacers are going to be able to ride out this tidal wave of however many games he misses with strong play by Siakam and strong play from the rest of this roster. Everybody's going to have to step up. Eddie sent out to us the 
stat about the Pacers against the Nuggets since 05. They won what, like four or five games over that stretch, Eddie? Eight and 30. Yeah, I mean, like, look, it, that's not to say that history matters when it's that long, but it's a great Denver Nuggets team this year. Like, I wasn't necessarily expecting them to pull a W out tonight, regardless of who was out there. But you look at these three games and where you are positioned in the East, you're a seven spot right now. You'd be in the play-in. You're effectively tied with Miami. You cannot afford, and it puts a lot of pressure on Halliburton in that regard, if Siakam and company are not able to answer the bell for however game, however many games he misses, you cannot afford to have another situation like last year where Tyrese Halliburton misses 10, 12 games because it has the potential to literally derail your hopes this year. Well, but again, I think, Jimmy, you're, again, what I'm saying is your hopes, though, I think you have to temper back your hopes to the beginning of the year and remind yourself of where you were expected to be. I get that 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 hopes and goals and expectations change as you progress, but but I still think that you don't sacrifice the long term for immediate. You know what what is their ceiling this year? Their ceiling this year probably is what a playoff series, right? Yeah, win, win a playoff series. My bar for them since the opener has been a six seed or better. I think. And they, so I think what I'm saying enough. is, like, I don't think that I don't think this is a huge deal. But if it becomes one, right. You don't sacrifice your long-term thing no. to try to, to make sure that you can win a playoff series. Correct. But but the reality of this season, depending on how they view it, I'm not saying he shouldn't rest these three games. But if this turns into a 10 to 15 game absence, which again, there's no indication that would happen. I'm not saying you need to put him out there for the sake of putting him out there. But the reality of it is, fair or not, is it has the potential to ruin what could have been a promising jumping off point year for them. Not to say that like the franchise is ruined or Halliburton is ruined, but yeah, I think if he misses 10 to 15 games, if that's the span, like what happened last year, I don't think they if make he a play comes, I think if he comes back, let's just say for the sake of what doom's gloom argument, he misses 15 games. Sure. If he does and he comes back, but he's a hundred percent, I think they're, I, I don't think they're in bad shape because I think they make up first up their schedule has been really tough. Yeah. And it still I, is now, right? Which would mean it's going to be favorable likely for the last, you know, month and a half of the year, but you still give yourself an, I mean, if, if they get in as an eight, nine, whatever play in, even if it's a play in, yeah. if they're he- healthy and a hundred percent, they're in good shape. Now the guy that becomes a key issue now is going to be Andrew Nimhart, who's been banged up. He's going to get more minutes. TJ McConnell, you kind of know what you're getting there. Um, you know, so some guys are going to have to play different roles. Jarris Walker um, and Ben Shepard. Rick Carlisle talked about this morning with Kevin, you know, and Andy, how he's he's they've earned the right to get out there and get more comfortable and get more time. So, you know, maybe they have some a little more depth than they had a month and a half ago. I, there's Look, it's a fluid season, man. 82 games is a long, long season. Uh, on the program today, by the way, is Buddy Heald on – the trading block. There's a guy that wrote about exactly that. He's going to join us at one o'clock. Brett Siegel, right? Is the last name or Siegel? Excuse me, Brett Siegel, going to join us at one o'clock today. One thirty. Brian Newbert, Purdue and Michigan in action tonight. That's a nine o'clock tip. That's on Peacock. Stephen Holder going to join us at two o'clock to talk about the Colts. Jimmy, did you do anything fun last night? Watched a lot of what happened in the NBA. You had insane scoring outputs from. Both Joel Embiid I got and a bone Carl to pick with Philly. Towns. I got a bone to pick with Philly. All right. Joel Embiid last night set a Philadelphia 76er franchise record for points in a game. Right? He got his 67th and 68th point from the free throw line, and then with, I think, two minutes to go and change, 
he took the ball the length of the floor and scored kind of on a drive, and the crowd went nuts as he hit 70. And look, I know this guy is – you ever been to Sinclair Gas Station? No. Eddie, you ever heard of Sinclair Gas Station? Negatory. Okay. Um, Sinclair Gas Station has a mascot that's a big green brontosaurus. When you pull in, they always have a, a big Sinclair brontosaurus out front. And that kind of looks like – like Joel Embiid is built like that, just long, like kind of lumbering, right? He does not look – but he is obviously very athletic. But his body, I mean, just the size, he is so big that his knees and, you know, I mean, I know that his body takes a lot of abuse and, and you've got to kind of get load management for him when you can. I get it. But how do you not – with two minutes left in the game, even if you just stand him at the three-point line and like, we're just going to throw it out to you for a couple of threes, how do you not go for 76? Shouldn't the franchise record for the Philadelphia 76ers be 76 points in a game? All right. What's with the marketing of these people? Well, he missed 17 <laughs> shots, Jake. It's his fault. He only needed three of them or two threes. He's that cl- Like, you're that close. People ask me all the time. They're like, I've been to all 50 states, right? And people are like, how did you get to all 50 states? I'm like, I'll tell you how. Because if I was close to one, I'm going for it. You're within sight. You got to do it, Right. You seize opportunities. You t- you go after it. When moments are in front of you, you take them. You don't, take advantage of them. Don't you have to be aware of the potential of the opportunity before you can take it? Because something tells me that nobody in that arena was thinking, or at least nobody There's in relevance no was like, hey. There's no way that nobody in that arena was thinking to themselves, wouldn't it be cool if he had 76? You're right. That's probably ignorant because there's, there's a lot a, of people the, that The middle game. of the floor says 76. I don't think that the PR people had your type of acumen to lean over and be like, hey, coach. Then they're morons. Fire them. I'm not doubting that. How could they not know that? I really thought it was going to be, man, like two minutes, you get him 15 more shots real quick with no, some great defense, just get him get, to 101, but here's no, the other 76. Thing. No, no, no. If he's at, as soon as he hits 76, I don't care. Listen, I don't care if there's nine minutes left in the game and it's tied and it's games and it's, and it's the last game of the year, even if it's game seven, as soon as he hits 76, I'm pulling him out of the game. He's got – no, no, no. We're sticking at 76. Not 77, not 70. I want 76, right? <laughs> Undoubtedly. The Charlotte 49ers. I, if I'm the coach of the Charlotte 49ers and some guy hits 49 points, I don't give us eight minutes left. You're coming out. You play for the 49ers, career-high 49. That's how it works. Like, where's the, what is, where's the marketing mindset of these people? It's a no-brainer. He missed eight shots within six feet. I think it's his own fault that he didn't get to 76 points. He only needed three of them. You think he's kicking himself today? But if he, Probably. But here's the thing. What, what did he go from the floor last night? Uh, 24 or 41. Sorry. He had 24 field goals, right? Yeah. He, he only need three more. He missed what, 17. What is he this year? How many three-pointers has he hit this year? All right. Let me look at that. I'll yeah. bet he's hit 23s this year. I mean, he can shoot from the outside. I've, I saw him do it here. Only right? percentage. He's hit 37. Yeah. So out of his 102 attempts. Okay. So so he's a 36% three-point shooter. Fine. He needs two of them. Just stand him on the, for that matter. And I can't even remember. I watched the game. Who were they playing last night? Spurs. San Antonio. San Antonio, right? Yeah. Wimbledon Miami had 33, right? So look, if you're San Antonio, you, you gotta honor it. If you're San Antonio, you're like, look, this guy's just gonna stand <laughs> at the three-point line, and we're gonna let him take open looks until he gets 76. There's no way that nobody else thought of this. 
Now, here's the other thing that happened yesterday. So once I got over my shock, my sticker shock of the fact that I'm the only marketing mind that knows that Joel Embiid should have had 76 last night. What a headline, right? 76 drives 76. Think I mean, about how on, many. Right? Think about how many offices in Philadelphia were robbed of the chance of a think front about the page 76. The, sh- the t-shirts, correct. Joel Embiid holding up a thing, 76, next to his 76ers jersey, right? Come on. But, so last night after all that took place, so then I went home, and I'm like, I hadn't checked my mail yet. And guess what was waiting for me in the mailbox? Jimmy Cook. Eddie knows the answer because we discussed it earlier. Guess what was waiting for me in the mailbox like Christmas Day? Uh, something from Publishers Clearinghouse. You would like to think, right? No, wasn't that? Ed McMahon okay. was not on my front right, doorstep. I don't know. Uh, somebody wanting to be a part of the company. I, I Something we talked about. You were gone when, when it really came up in conversation. You have resubscribed to mail-in DVDs and Shawshank Redemption was in your mailbox. That's an excellent question. And by the way, I might now admit because the statute of limitations is up uh myself and other guys in college like every other person that attended a university in the early 90s might have had uh a few alias subscriptions to the 10 cds for a penny club no one of my life goals and and i'm worried that my discussing it right now is going to impede my opportunity and chance of actually this coming to fruition One of my life goals that I always said I thought would be fascinating and cool. And now, admittedly, admittedly, I'm a little bit like, I don't know. I mean, I always thought it'd be awesome. And then now, then I I saw what was before me and I thought, eesh, I didn't know all the details here. I'm a little hesitant. Kind of like, kind of like when I said to Shannon, she goes, what do you want for your 40th birthday? I said, I want to go skydiving. I didn't know what to say. I kind of panicked and I just said, I I want to go skydiving. I didn't really want to go. She buys it for me, and I'm like, now I have no choice, right? So all the time that I thought it'd be neat to go skydiving, and then when I was standing there and I was on deck and I looked up and I in the plane and I saw the little dots falling out, and I'm like, wait a minute. That's going to be me in a minute? Things changed. <laughs> so I've always talked about how I wanted to do the following, and then oh, it wait, arrived wait, 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 wait. as wait, a gift in my mailbox. Can I guess one more? Okay. Um, you got an invite to be a part of the Amazing Race. Oh, that would be so big. I, I applied. They probably with, don't do that by mail anymore. I applied with Motman, and I sent a video and everything of us, and they have yet to get to it. I, th- there's no way that there could be a better tandem of a team on Amazing Race I'm than myself and Dr. Motman, right? I'm there with you. I, in fact, I thought it'd be awesome to do. I was super excited about it. Super excited about this. And then I read the details of the information. I'd like to know, somebody call this program right now. We're going to test the listeners of this fine radio show if they can remember what I had said once I thought would be a fascinating life goal of mine. And now that the opportunity is presented before me, I have a little bit of hesitation because it's not a foregone conclusion that I will actually get the opportunity, but I am in the hopper. I'm in the mix. He's got the yips right now. You know, I've seen enough game shows and grew up with enough who wants to be a millionaire to know what's happening right now. <laughs> Two through nine, ten seventy. I want to know if anybody remembers what it was that I talked about. I'm putting us on the spot here, actually. And I'll, I'll actually reveal what it is, and we'll talk more about the Halliburton deal and whether or not Buddy Heald could be on his way out of Indiana. We'll get to that with Brett Siegel, who wrote exactly that. He's going to join us at 1 o'clock today. It is a Tuesday edition 
of Quarry and Company on 93.5107.5 The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. What would it mean to Tyrese Halliburton if Buddy Heald is on his way out of town? Obviously, Buddy Heald on an expiring contract and already once has turned down a potential extension, reportedly. Uh, we'll get into that conversation just a little bit. Brett Siegel going to join us on the program at 1 o'clock. So my little piece in the mail yesterday of a long-standing dream, and now that there's the possibility, I'm a little bit – I've got cold feet a little bit, and I'm a little worried. Shane joins us on the program, better known as Alan Ladd. Shane, come back and come back, Shane. What's up, Shane? Do we have Shane? So we're having phone issues. Now I can see Shane. I feel bad because have you, Shane, come back, <laughs> come back, Shane. Have you seen that movie, Jimmy? It's a it's an old western, old 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 western. I should know this because my late father was a fan of encore westerns and the like, but I can't place now, it. Now I'm not going to say that 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 this is an area of concern per se, but but I'm looking over and Eddie Garrison is is now disconnecting things. He's he's now changing out phones. That seem that seems less than advantageous, does it not? I mean, that's one way to look at it. The other way is that's a hardworking young man there across the board. Well, no, I, I'm not dissing Eddie at all. <laughs> I'm just saying when you're doing a radio program that's a call-in radio you, show, seeing the phones unplugged, midway not a through, good idea. seeing the guy, it, it's kind of like when you're on an airplane and you look out and the guy's got duct tape on the wing, and you're like, that seems less than stellar, <laughs> right? The good news is. That the door is not off of this phone. That is correct. Right? It is not. That is correct. We had to ground all we phones. We know what airlines were not. Correct. Right? Yes. Man, so, I'm still on the edge of my seat about this. I, I really know. Well, well, now, like, I feel like we've kind of buried the lead, right? Like, at this point, it's probably time for me to just unveil it. Are we going to try Shane again here, Eddie? Give it 30 seconds. I'm a little disappointed that you didn't open the. I'm like Gene Kelly. Back. Like, I'm just tap dancing, singing in the rain over here. Right? I wanted you to come back and be like, yeah, we got Shane on the phone. He's one question away I, from $250,000. I mean, seriously. By the way, and I do have a theory, by the way, on that who wants to be a millionaire, the first go around with it when Regis was doing it. Yeah. The guy that won the million dollars, it was completely uh, thrown. People were getting tired of nobody winning, and so they staged it for some guy to win. Well, there's a guy over in. I think England or somewhere over there in another spinoff of it that got caught for cheating when he was coughing. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody was... Whenever he would say, I, I don't think it's C, and then they would cough whatever the right to answer To me, that's was. not even cheating. That's actually savvy. All right, Shane. We're going to try it again. Shane, what's up? Not much. Hallelujah. You Thank you today? for your patience. Yes, sir. Shane, do you have a guess? Uh, my guess is to throw out the first pitch at an Indians game. Shane, that's an outstanding guess. And I got news for you. I've actually done that once. Uh, I was a heavier fella, and I was wearing a shirt that was too tight on me, and it looked like I had man boobs, so I've never actually divulged the photo to anybody uh, at the time. But I have been able to do that. It was a pleasure to do so. I also, by the way, was able to throw out the first pitch at a University of Indianapolis game along Go with Hounds. Derek Schultz, and they had two catchers set up, one for me and one for Derek, and Derek didn't realize there was a catcher directly across from him, and he threw at my <laughs> catcher and hit her right in the head. It was very embarrassing. <laughs> All right, who's next? We're going to go with Robert. Robert, you are on. Robert, you're in the company. What do you do for a living, Robert? 
I am a police officer at oh. a small private university. Okay, uh, and would that be a private university in uh, Marion or the Donut Counties? Uh, just outside one of the Donut Counties. Okay, everything going okay there at, at school? What, what's the worst thing you got to deal with? A couple underage drinkers, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's usually the worst. Okay, and, and Robert, are you a native of Indianapolis? No, I grew up in Terre Haute. Okay. Well, Robert, you are the director of security for the company. If you're cool with that, we could always use that too. So we, we are pleased with that. Um, yeah, do you, do you have a it. guess what life goal of mine is about to be fulfilled potentially, even though I have cold feet? Well, I remember like a week or so ago, you talking about um, always wanting to spend a day in prison. Okay. That is an excellent guess, Robert. Oh, I forgot about that Somebody one. got mad at me about that, by the way, and thought that I was belittling the prison experience. And I'm like, no, actually... Uh, I think it would be important to tell the story of people that are in prison to find out. Um, I think there's a lot of journalistic thing that can do, you know, like, oh, we, you know, typical entitled opinion. Okay. By the way, we have a uh, Royal Pin prize pack giveaway. That's not correct, by the way. To give away today. We've got two of them. If one of the three callers on hold gets it right, Perfect. do we give it? Yes. Let them? All right, yes. cool. So you got to make sure you don't roll a gutter ball here. We'll go with Emerson. Emerson, my question for you, and, and the director of security is not listening, so you're safe here. Uh, we're going to pretend he's not. Have you ever been tempted to, when you were a kid, not now, to, to get an Emerson Avenue sign from somewhere, you know what I mean, to one of the street signs? Is, is Emerson launching a missile? I think, he's, I think he's on Emerson Avenue right now. Emerson, are you there? I'm here. Okay, there we go. Uh Emerson, so I'll ask the question again. Were you ever tempted to to get an Emerson Avenue sign, Emerson Way? No, but I had uh, Emerson radios when I was growing up. Yeah, hell yeah. What about isn't there isn't there an Emerson University or Emerson College there like is. out east? Yeah, yeah. 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 I was right. named after my uh, great uncle, last name Fittipaldi. Uh, nice, Emerson Fittipaldi, baby. Emerson, do you know what years Emerson Fittipaldi won the Indy Five Hundred? I have no clue. Let's say, is it sometime in the 80s? 89 and 93, baby. I bet you drink your orange juice every morning. All right, Emerson, do you have a guess as to what life goal it is that I was going after? Yeah, it was jury duty. <laughs> Emerson, you're going bowling, baby. Royal Pen Bowling, you have won yourself a pack. We'll put you on hold, and if Eddie picks one of the proper nine phone modules here, we'll get you hooked up. So here's the thing. I got the card in the mail that says... You have been selected for jury duty. Congratulations. Now, my understanding is that so several neighbors got this as well. So I don't know if they send these out like based on zip code or something. Mm -hmm. And I do find it an important civic responsibility. And, and I think it will be fascinating. I mean, I think it's a great part of living where we do. Right. It's one of the responsibilities as a citizen and, you know, and everything else. I think it's but I've never been selected. Now, the only problem is this. So you call in, last night I did this, and it has a questionnaire, and you answer questions, and then it, sa it says, yes, in fact, you are eligible. Was it an automated, or was it a person? Automated. All right. So then, once I did that, and this is for the end of February. So once I did that, it says, okay, like you are, in fact, in the hopper now, and so you have to call the night before at 530. Now, I've gone through that process. I've gotten to that point of, of this the, the the cuts here that we do. It's like, you know, I've not gotten the golden ticket, right? But like Ryan Seacrest has interviewed me in the back hallway, but I've not gotten through to the golden ticket. 
I've not gone in front of the the panelists. I was going more Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, but yes, that's probably more that good too? modern reference. Yeah. Um. So the the next step in this is you call the night before to find out whether or not you are selected to show up the next day. Here's the problem. 8 a.m. When you have to call? No. If you you're selected, if, if you are if you are one of the prospective jurors selected, you have to report to the city county building by 8 a.m. Now, I know this is going to come as a real surprise to a lot of people that listen to this program, <laughs> especially considering what I did beforehand, but that's not what we call in my wheelhouse, right? Yeah. I'm not a morning rhythm guy. Now, I don't mean to put further pressure on you, but if you do get selected, you are legally obligated to go at 8 a.m., correct? Or oh, I- yes, yes, yes. Okay. Now, here's the other here's the other potential real buzzkill to this whole thing, okay? Yeah. Um. Oh, I take that back. It looks like, let's see here. I got to see what day. To, um, yeah, here's the buzzkill potentially of this whole thing. Mm-hmm. This is, I think, like on a, it's not a Monday when I have to, okay, it is Monday. Okay, I was going to say, if it was like a Wednesday, can you imagine if you get it and you got to report on Thursday and then you're sequestered over the weekend? That would stink. So I don't know that I'll get sequestered per se, but I but I'm genuinely curious of this. And and I don't mean this, I mean, I'm a nobody, but my assumption has always been, if it's like a, especially if it's a big crime, are you eliminated if you are a media member? Does, does working in the, and, and look, we in the media are not special by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just saying, because of like the secrecy of, of what, I mean, would they automatically eliminate you based on the fact that like I talk publicly for a living? I, I don't know the answer to that. It wouldn't be a requirement, but it might be a reason for one of the attorneys or opposing counsel yeah, to be I, like, all right, yeah, let's get that's rid of this better, guy. That's the better way of saying it, yeah. Now, have you done jury duty? We jokingly said when you were on vacation, you were on jury, jury duty. Yeah, no, I, I've never been a part of jury duty. My brother is a longtime practicing attorney, um, you know, so he's obviously been a part of- Can you ask if he'd weed me out? <laughs> what would he do? Would he select me? Uh, well, he he's listened relatively frequently, so maybe there's a chance I get a text here and say, "No, Jake, I'm sorry, I can't do that for you." <laughs> I'm just saying, right? For what it's worth, uh, Purdue tonight in action, taking on Michigan. We're going to talk, by the way, with Brian Newbert coming up at 1:30 about exactly that. Um, you know, Jimmy, with this particular game, and I look at Purdue and Michigan. To me, the biggest question mark is not even. Or, or the storyline of this game, I guess I, I would say. We know Purdue is really good. Really, really good, right? But um, what is going on with Michigan? I mean, I still think of Michigan as, I mean, and I think, you know, we're not far removed from when it was like, man, Jawan Howard, what a, what a home run hire, right? And like, th- I mean, Michigan is like circling the drain. They've had all kinds of problems. And did you ever think that that like the time would come where you would look at Michigan as like kind of your free space in the Big Ten? Is, and that's probably a really dangerous thing to say, right? No, I mean, not during this stretch. And in fact, if you're a fan of the company and you are an Indiana fan, you would have thought early on in the year that that win over Michigan was going to be something you could fall back on and, and be nice. Of course, you couldn't have envisioned what's happened since, but you would have thought it would have been a nice seed line difference type of victory and it's just not the case i mean they're two and five in conference right now 
They're seven and eleven overall. They are still viewed as one of the top offenses in the Big Ten, but there's just been a ton of inconsistent play from the Wolverines. And you combine that with the point that it's Purdue back at West Lafayette. And I know you mentioned how good the Boilermakers are, but now it's just a matter for me. And maybe this is disrespectful to Illinois. Maybe this is disrespectful to Wisconsin. It's definitely disrespectful to Michigan. I'm at a point now with Purdue where it's, can they stay away from complacency over the course of the Big Ten? Because in my mind, I think in everybody's mind going in, no doubt the preseason voters, Purdue's going to win the Big Ten title this year. Like, that's going to be just a foregone conclusion, and it's going to be a step towards them think that now? getting a one seed. Do I still think they're going to win the Big Ten? Yes, yeah. I do. Yes. Over Wisconsin? I do. Okay. I think in the end, Purdue is going to get there. And if they don't, then you're looking at, again, grabbing momentum in the Big Ten tournament when that arrives. But either way, as it stands... You're exactly right, Jake, when you look at where Michigan is currently and the fact that, again, it's Purdue back at home in this stretch run for Matt Painter and company. This is a game where, yes, I expect Purdue to handle their business and take care of things relatively easily. It's not a question of can Michigan pull off the upset. It is can Purdue stay focused and stay locked in without getting caught up in the fact that for the second straight year, they are viewed as a consensus or as close to a number one seed as you can find. And the larger goal is what are you going to do in March? Are they able to still navigate Proverbial the big Proverbial trap game, Correct. right? Yes. Uh, this from my buddy Gary Mack. Jake, you will not be selected because you do work in the media. Now, so then I see that and I think, okay, n- no 8 a.m., right? Now, I might have to actually show up, right? <laughs> but then once I get there are they gonna, and I bring my little lunch pail. Now, here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. If I go... So let's say that they pick my number and I have to go and report at 8 a.m. And I sit through the rigmarole and whatever else. And then at 11.10, they, they boot me. They say, you know what? No, thanks. Thank you for your time. But we're weeding you out. Your services are not needed. Wouldn't be the first time I've heard that kind of thing. Um, d- am I a nice guy then? And I walk across the street from the city county building and I come in here and say, hey, I was not selected. Or do I just take, do I automatically get the, the day off for my efforts? Is that a question for HR? That we, we don't, don't, we have. don't have an HR department, though. By, That's by the, the way, this, this is a very dangerous game. So maybe this is something we could discuss off the air, but uh, Rich Cook did, in fact, write in. Rich Cook, attorney okay. of law. Rich said he's available for Jake if he has any questions on his summons for jury duty. Yeah, what's he getting, like, you know, 160 an hour for my question? Am I, mean, I going to get a bill after the fact? I don't know. Now, this from Derek Thomas. Derek Thomas for the news. Channel 6. Broadcast legend Derek Thomas says... You are not eliminated because you're a media member. Now, Derek would know because he's not only a media member, but he covered courts forever. He's like the Doug Llewellyn of Indianapolis, right? With a, with a much cooler voice. Uh, hey, Jake, just take the day off. We'll go get PBR. <laughs> See, the PBR party is finally happening. I mean, we all know that keg's not going to be ready. Might as well pick something else. Exactly right. Eddie, did you say that we have breaking news, by the way? Indeed, we do. Okay. Okay. Didn't know if you wanted an hour later. From NFL Insider, Mike Garofolo with NFL Network. It's a, reportedly that the Chargers and Jim Harbaugh will, are in striking distance of getting a deal done, and Harbaugh is in L.A. today for another meeting with LAC. I've been saying his last name wrong for two years. Harbaugh? No. I thought it was Garofolo. Am I wrong on that? Garofolo. Garofolo? All right, I apologize mm-hmm. then to Mike. It's my fault. Did he not correct you? I haven't talked to him. <laughs> I've just referenced him on air before because he's now, usually one now of the on Seinfeld. Insiders. Was it Ginny Garoppolo or Ginny 
Garapello. It was Garoppolo, right? Never seen Seinfeld, so I don't know. How about Jimmy? Jimmy Garoppolo or Jimmy Garapello? Jimmy G. Jimmy G is correct, yes. Um, so close to a deal, but nothing in... in it right? seems like it's very likely that he will become their next head coach. So that would defy my prediction yesterday. I'm on a, I'm on a cold streak here. That Mike Vrabel to the Seahawks would be the first domino to fall. I feel like we got enough reaction, though, yesterday, especially from Charles McDonald, when you asked that or when you made that prediction, that it still might be a feather in the cap for you if that ends up happening, even if it's not the first domino. Because he was surprised, like, oh, I hadn't thought about putting Vrabel out in Seattle. So maybe you still have some legs on that. That's my prediction. First domino or just outright he's going to get there? Well, I thought it was going to be first domino, but I do think that Vrabel will end up in Seattle. Maybe I'm just by. You know, I I hate to admit this to you guys. Wasn't Gerard Mayo technically the first domino? Well, yeah, but I'm talking about of those that are in the the mix now, right? Technically it was in his contracts. Was he really? Also a good point. For whatever reason... I find myself just like more and more like not rooting for the Seahawks, but just thinking the Seahawks are cool. Nothing wrong with that. Like with with each, I don't know, like each time I see like their logo, I mean, I've always loved that logo, right? I've I've talked about it a billion times, but even just like the different shades of blue they have and like that, I mean, I've been to the stadium there. Um, I remember actually, and maybe this is part of, I guess my like soft spot for the city of Seattle and just the Seahawks in general, but I had to cover the Seahawks game in the year that Tony Dungy, the Colts were undefeated and Tony Dungy's son, Jamie passed away. And I went down to Tampa to cover that funeral. I was working at channel six and I remember seeing the team buses roll in for the Colts. And I thought to myself, Nobody's beating these guys. And then I think it was the next game. They had they finished the year. They had three games. Arizona was one. One of them was here. That might have been the Arizona game. But I think they either had one loss or they were still unbeaten when they went to Seattle. But I want to say that it was the next game after that. And the people of Seattle, the Seattle fans, and it was Christmas Eve, I remember that. But the Seattle fans as any would be admittedly i mean you don't get like some award for for being a decent human i guess you should be in general but the people were just so like kind to tony dungy and about that entire situation it was almost like they felt guilty for seattle winning that game manning rested and jim sorgi played the majority of the game but they were they were really really good people about it and it was a really really difficult thing to cover that was just a all of that was just kind of a, a blur Nightmare. Not a good one. Buddy Heald on the block. Yes or no? Brett Siegel joins us just about 10 minutes from now to answer that. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Now, my other jury duty question is this, and then I promise we'll move along and Talk about sports. We had a lot of good guests lined up for today. Brett Siegel coming up 1 o'clock. Brian Newbert and then Stephen Holder on the show as well. Um, Somebody just texted me that they were part of a three-day murder trial, but they were not sequestered. So what is the qualification for being sequestered? Rich Cook said he'd do it pro bono. (laughs) 
but I also think Rich Cook's angling what, to get what, on the air. So what, either what way, line you can take of, that any way you want. What, what line of law does Rich Cook work in? Uh, at this point, medical mal practice cases, but um, he was a. I'm going to butcher Rich, going to be very mad at me. I know he worked in the prosecutor's office. He worked uh, up in South Bend at the uh, state attorney's office for a very, very long time. And he worked. I'm sure I am. I'm paraphrasing. He went badly to undergrad here. where? Valpo. And then he went to law school where? Also, also Valpo? Valpo, I believe. Yeah. Valpo Law School no longer around, by the way. My I clearly don't Byron know my brother, so I'm sure he might call in anyway just to yell at me for not knowing that part. But yes, uh, Rich Cook, very. Uh, and to clear, to clear this up, for those wondering, Jake knows this, but uh, Rich is a very experienced attorney. He has practiced law many, many, many years. And to amplify that, it's just a mere 39 years between myself and Rich Cook in age. So That's your oldest brother? My oldest brother. Okay. Yep. Fair enough. Um, the fact that he's doing it pro bono, I, I'm appreciative of that. That's good. Because yeah. I like it when you see some guy, and you're like, hey, I got a quick question for you. Like, oh, yeah, no problem. And a week later, you get something, and you're like, what is this, $85? He was writing on a on a legal pad <laughs> as we were talking, and it was right. an invoice. I had no idea. Uh, Brett Siegel going to join us next. We'll talk Pacers, Buddy Heald, Perspective Trades. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. I still, by the way, cannot believe that Steve Perry just celebrated his 71st or 75th birthday. I don't know why, like with a lot of musicians, a lot of people, whatever, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. But for whatever reason, like I just still think of him as being, I don't know, 45 years old. And then I have to remind myself, well, Jake, you know, look at your birth certificate. Probably not exactly the uh, most likely thing in the world, right? Uh, Joining us now in the program, you can read his work at clutchpoints.com and Clutch Sports is where Brett Siegel writes his work about the NBA, including his latest involving Buddy Heald and the Indiana Pacers. Uh, Brett, first off, good afternoon. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing today? No complaints whatsoever. Obviously, the big news in Indiana from earlier today is the fact that Tyrese Halliburton is going to miss at minimum the next three games after the training staff, according to Rick Carlisle, you know, wasn't necessarily happy with the way that his hamstring responded from playing in Portland. He did not play against Phoenix. He will not play in these three games this week. They will reassess it before Memphis on Sunday. But one of the guys that Tyrese Halliburton, of course, has become accustomed to playing with is Buddy Heald. And you had an interesting column yesterday about Buddy Heald and his prospective future with the Indiana Pacers. Elaborate if you could. Right, so after making the Pascal Siakam trade, the Pacers are open for business. This is a team in a front office that's looking to improve in any way that they can. They made it to the championship game of the in-season tournament. They see an opportunity to rise up in the Eastern Conference standings. And after going out and getting Siakam, the path to possibly getting a top-four seed or better in the Eastern Conference has presented itself. We've seen this team stack up against the East best. We've seen what they can do against the Milwaukee Bucks, which is why there's a real belief that they can be true contenders in the Eastern Conference. So with that being said, 
how can they improve this roster after getting Siakam and with Halliburton returning after his injury and he is dealing with that three-game absence now. But the hope is that he'll be good to go and be 100% afterwards. So what can you do to this roster to improve it improve it after the Siakam trade? And the answer is that they've made Buddy Heald, Jalen Smith, and Obi Toppin available in trade talks. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're actively looking to trade these guys. They're simply going out there on the market, and they're willing to talk with teams and see what upgrades are available for their roster. If they can get a solid, good player in return, potentially out on the wing is where they're really looking. There is a chance that they can move Buddy Heald in that $19 million expiring contract. The same can be said for Obi Toppin, although they have really liked Obi Toppin's production at the power forward position this season before they got Siakam. Jalen Smith, to me, is an intriguing one because I think they really like Jalen Smith. I think when Indiana acquired him, uh, you know, Phoenix had basically said, like, look, we, we, we don't know what all is left there. Indiana really liked him in college at Maryland. So they decided to take that flyer, and I think Jalen Smith appreciated that, which is why he kind of came back on a hometown discount but on a one-year deal do you believe that there are other teams that would, I'm going to say, outbid Indiana for Jalen Smith on the long term, which would make his trade a desirable one for Indiana so that they don't lose him for nothing? I don't necessarily think so. I don't believe that there's going to be too big of a market for a guy like Jalen Smith, and he has played well for the Indiana Pacers. He has that player option for next season that he could opt out of to seek a bigger deal. But, yeah, he's been a really good, productive player in the front court for the Pacers. And quite honestly, I think that this has been his best year in the league when you look at what he's done on the offensive end of the court. And you can see that just his understanding of the game is beginning to grow in Rick Carlisle's system. So I do think that he's a player that they'd like to keep long-term. Obviously, if the right trade comes their way and there's a player out there that can improve their roster and that's a salary that they would have to give up or, or a talent that they would have to give up for that matter from another team's perspective of them wanting Jalen Smith, I think that they would be willing to part ways with him. But in terms of being a secondary contributor, especially off the bench now with Siakam there, I definitely think that the upside Jalen Smith presents is something that the Pacers do value. Brett Siegel is our guest, covers the NBA for Clutch Points as an insider and reporter nationally. Brett, Buddy Heald has been attached to rumor mills ever since he arrived here in Indiana. And the last couple of seasons, you'd lump Miles Turner in there and it was, oh, the Lakers are interested or a contender is interested. When you look at Buddy Heald in the 2023-2024 season, does Buddy Heald still carry the same value and interest towards contending teams that he did say a season or two ago? I think so, and I think it's for two reasons. One, because he's still the same three-point shooter that we've seen through the years. Buddy Heald, a high-volume three-point guy. You know what you're getting with him, and it's not like he's going to go to another team and all of a sudden either blossom or regress as a scorer. He's going to be out on the wing. He's going to be a 40% three-point shooter. He's going to be amongst the league leaders in three points made. So that's what any team that would potentially trade for Buddy Heald, that's what they would be doing is getting a three-point guy, a catch-and-shoot guy that they can rely on either in their starting lineup or as a six-man potentially. Now, the second reasoning is his contract. I think that he may be a little bit more lucrative this season simply because he has that $19 million expiring deal could be a deal that playoff contending teams like simply because of the second apron coming into effect next offseason. And then obviously that $20 million that frees up in cap space 
could be very valuable to multiple teams around the league, including the Pacers heading into the offseason if they wind up keeping him. I and mean, there's multiple things that they could do there, especially with Siakam being in the final year of his contract and a potential long-term deal being on the horizon there worth upwards of $40-plus million per year. So I, I think that when you look at Buddy Heal, both from the Pacers' perspective and other teams' perspective, they're going to be taking in that $19 million contract with the mindset that it's an expiring deal that they could use to allocate funds elsewhere. Brett Siegel, our guest, Clutch Sports, his outlet, talking about Buddy Heald. Uh, Brett, in terms of Buddy Heald, Obi Toppin, Jalen Smith being open for business, basically, being on the Pacers, putting them on Craigslist, do you believe, like, in other words, are you hearing that definitively from Indiana or from what other teams are telling you that Indiana has extended to them as an overture? It's a little bit of both. And from the Pacers' perspective, it's more of what what is still out there on the trade market that could really improve our roster at this point. We know that they wanted a power forward. They got that with Pascal Siakam. Now the next step is finding that secondary talent that can really push this team over the edge. We've seen what they've been able to do offensively. They have plenty of firepower there. Even if they were able to move a guy like Buddy Heald, if they were to get off of a guy like Obi Toppin, you still have a lot of firepower, especially with Siakam's arrival. So from the Pacers' perspective, if there's another guy out there that they truly do believe can come in, be their number three guy, and make a difference in terms of this team improving from a playoff contending, possibly even a championship contending standpoint, they are comfortable making that trade. From an outside team's perspective, They've heard that the Pacers are willing to talk about these guys, and it's more of not necessarily offering them up to teams and saying, hey, we'll give you Buddy Heald and Obi Top and X, Y, and Z for this player. It's more like, who's available on your team? Would you be willing to discuss a trade package surrounding Top? Would you be willing to discuss a trade package surrounding Heald? So I think it's just more of the Pacers doing their due diligence at this point than actually being seriously interested in orchestrating another blockbuster trade. It's just one of those scenarios around the trade deadline that we see with a lot of teams where they set prices on their players and they're willing to see how much a team's willing to pay for said player. If they're willing to exceed that asking price and they're willing to give up a lot for that player and there's a lot of value that can come back in return, maybe it's worth exploring that avenue. I totally agree on Obi Toppin, by the way, that I think you know he's one that probably is always fluid. Um, and because of the fact that Heald did not accept the reported extension, I, I think you have to assume that that is also in fair play. I'll respectfully disagree a little bit on Jalen Smith in terms of their, their willingness, although certainly if somebody came along and said, look, we'll trade you Carl Anthony Towns for Jalen Smith, you know, I mean, I get it, right? Um, but that said, Brett, in your opinion, give me a player, I'm not saying definitive by name to be held to, but the kind of player in terms of, of level of talent you're talking about that you think could be yielded by surrendering Buddy Heald. Right. So I, I don't think that this is a realistic scenario. I, I just don't see this team giving him up at this point, given the value that they put on him. But I think that if you're going to give up a guy like Buddy Heald, you have to try to get a talent like Kyle Kuzma in return, where he's a secondary contributor, a secondary playmaker, and a guy that can take pressure off of Halliburton and Siakam, who, when they're on the bench, you can count on a guy like Kuzma. You can't necessarily say that about Buddy Heald right now, other than his scoring abilities. Buddy Heald is kind of a a one-dimensional player in terms of what he gives your team. You look at guys like Kuzma, you look at guys... Uh, around the league, even a player, and he's not going to fit in with the Pacers, just using this as an example, 
of a, a playmaker that you would potentially target in, in this kind of skill level. A guy like DeJounte Murray, who various teams around the league are targeting, again, not saying he's somebody that the Pacers want or should target, just that kind of skill level. If you're going to go out and trade Buddy Heald, a guy that's on a $20 million contract, you want to try to get a talented player like that in return where he can come in, fill a key need, and really be of value to this franchise, not only in the short term in their playoff pursuit, but also long term. So I, I think that's kind of where the Pacers would be looking at but obviously you have to take into consideration the fact that Pascal Siakam's in the final year of his contract. You're going to be paying him long-term potentially. So do you really want to take on another long-term contract like Kyle Kuzma's or somebody else around the league that you may be targeting? And those are the discussions that are currently ongoing in the front office. NBA insider for Clutch Points, Brett Siegel, is our guest. Brett, with the NBA trade deadline occurring before NBA All-Star Weekend this year, and that's the way the league is shifting things moving forward, in terms of conversations, rumors, discussions from agents, all that good stuff, in terms of the state of the league, how is the trade deadline occurring before All-Star Weekend impacting trade dialogue and teams' willingness to pursue trades? Yeah, I think it's kind of the same, to be honest with you, compared to last season and and years past. I think that when you have it before the All-Star break, and especially with all the new, I guess, bonuses, you can say, that have been added to the league with the in-season tournament and the playing tournament over the last few years, I think it's creative incentive for teams to go out and be more aggressive on the trade front. And we've seen it kind of progress this year where – the Charlotte Hornets are selling, the Washington Wizards are selling, but other than that, there's truly no sellers on the tree block, whereas in past years, there's been five, six, maybe seven teams that go out and say, hey, we'll be willing to take on larger contracts if you're giving us draft picks, and we're willing to give up some of our guys to get some future value. So I don't think we're seeing as much of that this year, and I think that's good for the league, especially before the All-Star break, because you see a guy like Siakam, who is an All-Star, on the move to the Pacers. You see a guy like Terry Rozier, who's not an All-Star talent, but a guy averaging 20 points per game he's on the move to the Miami to the Miami Heat and all of a sudden they could go on a hot streak no pun intended before the all-star break there so I think that it's definitely good for the league and I think that the movement of big name players being on the move I think that that definitely uh, impacts the league in a positive way from a fan perspective here's one that a guy that had been mentioned on this show a couple weeks ago and the Siakam deal probably negates this guy, but I'm curious from your standpoint, Brett, or even if you know, Brett Siegel, why this guy's game has dropped so significantly uh, and, and if he's even still like available or getting overtures. What, what's happened with Andrew Wiggins, who I think is a good defender and a good size, but man, it seems like his game has just fallen off a cliff. Right, and, and that's been a big storyline for the Golden State Warriors this season is, and even last season when he came back from his personal matters, is where's Andrew Wiggins? This is not the same guy that they had during their 2022 championship run, the guy that was arguably their best rebounder next to Kaval Mooney during that championship run, a two-way presence. He was an all-star, one of the best three-point shooters from the corner at one point, and now he's a guy that's getting paid $24 million this season. He's just taking up space, averaging 11, 12 points per game, and He's even been utilized off the bench at times by Steve Kerr. So what's what's going on with Andrew Wiggins, really? It, it's kind of a question of what's going on with the Warriors at this point because we know all the drama that they've been dealing with and obviously the passing of one of their assistant coaches, that's kind of kept them on the low over the past week in terms of the trade deadline. Not much has been said about the Warriors. Their front office hasn't really been doing much and it, a lot of the focus has been on the team's mental health and getting through this tough time and being able to get back out on the court. So as it pertains to the Warriors, with the trade deadline, 
things are very quiet after the Pascal Siakam deal. They were involved in some trade chatter with the Raptors. They were willing to take on Siakam without any long-term assurance that he would be there past this season. Ultimately, the Raptors chose the Pacers package, and now the Warriors are just kind of left in this purgatory state of you don't really know what they're going to be able to deal at this point because you have Chris Paul. He's injured on that big contract, maybe a contract that other teams would be willing to take on, seeing as they can easily get off at $30 million. But what value does that really present to them? Andrew Wiggins, again, a big contract, hasn't produced this season. Does he really hold much value on the trade block? And if the Warriors aren't going to get a lot in return, would they even be willing to deal him at this point, knowing that he was an instrumental part of their championship roster just a few seasons ago? So to, to answer your question the best I can, Andrew Wiggins, to my knowledge, I do believe that they're going to be holding on to him, although it has looked likely in past weeks that they were going to move on from him. That was just more in connection to the Pascal Siakam trade talks. Right now, it just doesn't seem like that there is that moving player, that number one guy out there that the Warriors could move Wiggins for and be in a better spot long-term at this point. Hey, Brett, for people that are not familiar with it in Indiana because they didn't watch a lot of the Raptors and they have not seen a lot just as of yet with Indiana, uh, tell me about Siakam. How good is he? What kind of guy and player is Indiana getting? Well, when he was with the Raptors, they, they gave him a lot of responsibilities. Not only was he their number one scorer, but he could create both in the perimeter and in the low post. He's a guy that was one of their main facilitators before they got Scotty Barnes. And during their championship run, when they took down the Golden State Warriors, when Siakam really emerged as an all-NBA and all-star talent, he was their do-it-all guy from rebounding to assists to defense even. He, he was playing at an all-defensive level that season. So I think that they're getting really one of the more underrated two-way big men in this league. I think that Siakam can guard one through five. I think that on offense, he's going to take a lot of pressure off of Tyrese Halliburton to always have to be the facilitator, always have to be the playmaker for this team. And obviously, from a scoring perspective, when you join the number one team in the league that has more possessions per game than the Raptors, I mean, the Raptors were a really slow-paced playing team. Now you join a fast-paced uh, a team that likes to get shots up. I think that we're only going to see Siakam's scoring numbers go up from here. So through two games, them being 0-2, and, and Siakam maybe struggling a little bit with his shot, I wouldn't be too concerned with that. I think that Pascal Siakam is going to fit in really well here. And that as time goes on alongside Tyrese Halliburton, he's really going to thrive as the all-star talent that he is. NBA insider with Clutch Points, Brett Siegel is our guest. Brett, the trade deadline is two weeks from Thursday. As it stands, what you've heard, what you're reporting do you envision that Pascal Siakam is the biggest name move between now and the deadline? That's a good question. And uh, to, to be perfectly honest, I would say yes as of right now. But it really depends on, A, how, how much you compare him to guys like DeJounte Murray and Terry Rozier. And then also, you always have that if factor. I mean, last year, there was talk of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving be on the, being on the move, but we never really believed it until we saw that Kevin Durant was traded. I mean, you, you don't see a player like that get moved very often. So could there be another big all-star, another big name on the move? Sure. I think that you could see Zach Levine. I think you could see DeMar DeRozan possibly traded from the Chicago Bulls. Will it happen? Probably not, but it's always a possibility. And then you have rumors like Laurie Marketed. The Jazz aren't willing to give him up. But you never know. Maybe a team comes at them with a Rudy Gobert package that they just can't turn down. So there's definitely big names that can be on the move out there. But as far as all-star goes, as far as proven talent goes, I do think that this trade deadline with Siakam, I think that he was the biggest name available. Hey, Brett, I, I said earlier that I think the Philadelphia 76ers missed a brilliant marketing opportunity. Um, and I'm hoping because you're a basketball mind, you'll agree with me here. 
Last night, Joel Embiid goes for 70, franchise record. They had to leave him in and just leave him at the three-point line and let him keep chucking him up until he got 76 so that the franchise record would be 76 points, right? It's in the middle of the floor. It's on the jersey. This is a no-brainer, is it not? You got my back here? Yeah, I, I think that would have been great. You could have had a, some kind of customized <laughs> logo for your jersey. Totally. Came with exactly. Shooting. So, yeah, I think that would have been great. But I mean, just seeing a guy score 70 points, I had to double take when I saw that. First. I, I didn't actually believe that he had 70 points there. But when you look at it, it it's not that surprising that Embiid is the, the ninth guy in NBA history to score 70, especially when he's acting around 35 points per game and on pace for another MVP award. So just a, a masterful performance by him and probably not the last big performance that we're going to see from him this season. You think 162 points is an NBA record for most combined amongst the top two scorers in a given night? I honestly don't know if it is. Is it, is it actually the, the most points scored? by uh, not, not 162, I'm sorry. Um, 132, I mean. 70 and 62, 132. So I was thinking of Wilt Chamberlain's 100-point game. I don't know if anybody had 32 in that same night or 33 in that same night, or if the night Kobe had 81, did anybody have 52? 132 has got to be the record for two guys in one night, right? I would think think so. I would think that that's definitely up there. If not, then you'd have to probably look at the night that Will had 100 and see who else around the league. So, I mean, back then, then, final scores, though, were like 40 to 35, right? I mean, nobody had 32. Right. See, Brett, yeah. here's the thing. This is the kind of stuff – I'm an insomniac, and this is the kind of stuff at like 3.30 in the morning that hits you that you start thinking about. People think I'm wacky on the gummies. It's not that at all. I just like – this is what happens, right? I'm just telling you. Hey, true basketball fans, that, that goes into their mind at night. Sometimes you, <laughs> you just wake up in cold sweats wondering what the next trade at the trade deadline is going to be, That's right? exactly right. That's exactly right. Brett, appreciate the time as always, um, and I know you've got a couple of articles up right now that include the Pacers and breaking down – Uh, what it means just in terms of Siakam and their competitiveness within the Eastern Conference. Appreciate the time and perspective today. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Take it easy. Appreciate it. Brett Siegel joining us on the program. Listen, um, I think the reason the 76 thing got overshadowed for me, Jake, was because it was the 18th anniversary already of Kobe's 81. And so to have those two individual performances on the same night from Carl Anthony Towns and from Joel Embiid, I guess I kind of got lost in that. I do have one question for you, though. Okay. Because you were disappointed about the 76 and the missed marketing campaign. Totally missed marketing opportunity, yes. Would you rather have been a 76ers fan, or what, what would disappoint you more? Being a 76ers fan in this case and not getting that signature 76 that you desperately coveted that you realize is probably never going to happen now, or being a Timberwolves fan and seeing one of your stars go for 62 and it's at a loss. Boy. Or seeing the 1975 Indiana Hoosiers team left off the cover of Sports Illustrated. Well, I feel like that's an easy answer, so let's remove that. Now, now wait you. a minute. Wait, was it 76? No, it was 87. 87. Sorry. 75. The 75 team didn't win at all. The 75 team got beat in the regional finals. Yeah, 87. 92 90, I think, to Kentucky and Dayton. Scotty May broke his arm. 76, May was on the cover when they won it. 87, they got screwed by the Cleveland Indians and Corey Snyder and Joe Carter, who lost 100 games that year. And then in the top corner, it just said, Hail the Mighty Hoosiers. And it's complete BS. Um, the Carl Anthony Towns. Less, I would have been less disappointed about him scoring 62 and losing because you're like, there's 80-some games, right? I would have been more disappointed that he scored 62 and it was not the top-scoring night, the top scorer yeah, of the night. Yeah, that's a good wrinkle, yeah. I mean, how about the fact that you know somebody pointed this out? I think it was Will Haskett pointed this out, that you had two players between 
Embiid and Wemamyama that combined in the same game for over 100 points and the free throw shooting. I, I mean, Joel Embiid was like 22 of 24 from the line. 23 of 25, something like that. I, I, in today's day, that doesn't stun you as much, but the evolution of the game of basketball, just to think about big men and free throws. I mean, look at like, and I've always said one of the real challenges for big players, for big men, and why they've been such bad free throw shooters is because the your hand is so big on the ball, it's hard to get a natural rotation on it. But obviously, that's not the case with a you know the the guys just start shooting the ball and becoming comfortable with that at a younger age. Now, I asked this question yesterday to somebody. So Jimmy and Eddie, allow me to ask you this: When you're talking about Embiid. Carl Anthony Towns, those are obviously very versatile, skill-setted offensive players with a little bit of range. What is the most recent year going backward in the way the game has changed? What is the most recent year that Zach Eady would have been the definitive number one pick in the draft? How far back do you have to go? I would say probably without looking it up. I'm not taking. I'm not talking about the players. I'm saying a dominant seven foot four, low post big man. I would say at least twenty years. That's probably right. S- sometime around then, right, Eddie? I was going to suggest probably around the time of Greg Oden, so 2007, the late 2000s. Yeah. When was when was Howard? Uh, I know he wasn't a number one, but when was Dwight? Or was Dwight? 04. Howard was 04. Andrew Bogut, 05. And he's probably right Oden with Oden. was 07, Oden, so Oden that's probably good. Be the, yeah. But, you know, even... Odin is the one to me that's interesting because I think Greg Odin... I think Greg Odin, to a great extent, is the boulder in the stream because I've always wondered... Greg Oden was such a dominant, low-post, back-to-the-basket big man. And yes, he had athleticism. But because of the injuries that derailed Greg Oden's career, if Oden had not gotten hurt, would that have, in a copycat league, forced teams to continue to try to build around the low block? As opposed to, you know, when when... The next real big man to get drafted number one was Anthony Davis and then Carl Anthony Towns, but those are more fluid big men. So you're probably right, Eddie. I mean, around then is probably a really good call. Um, and it was around that time as well when Steph Curry entered the league right. and, and just the style of play and the the quick. Once once you hit like the 2013 season, it's over. Like any conversation of ever going back is over because at that point, Steph started to get into his groove and you'd mentioned it, but like previous first round picks, it's guards, it's forwards, it's lengthy. I mean, bigs. DeAndre Ayton was a number one pick in eighteen, but again, you're kind of talking more like fluid big man, even though he's probably the closest to like a low rooted big man. But but he's not the you know DeAndre Ayton can run the floor right, and, and can pull up from fifteen. Edie might be able to do that stuff, but he hasn't been able to show it yet. That's actually a good question for our next guest who joins us to talk about tonight. Purdue and Michigan. Brian Newbert, other side. I was... 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. Mentioning earlier that last night you had 70 from Embiid, 62 from Carly Anthony Towns. I'm like, man, 132 between the top two scores on a given night. Wondered if that was a record. Somebody said, uh, hey, Jake, last NBA game of 1978, David Thompson had 73. George Gervin had 63 the same night. That'd be 136. Um, there was a night David Robinson had 77. Was that when he and Shaq were like battling for the scoring title? Yeah, so I was going to say, you wonder what the runner-up was that night as well. Uh, also, my buddy Michael Ware of the Elect who, by the way, I'm totally bummed. They released their spring schedule, and I can only see them at the Rascaler once. It is the greatest thing ever to be sitting at the beer garden at the Rascaler listening to the elect. <clears throat> Jake Chamberlain scored 101 game, and his teammate Al Adels had 17. Afterwards said, hey, did you hear Wilt and I combined for 117 points last <laughs> night? <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, joining us on the program now, Brian Newbert, goldenblack.com, friend of the show, Purdue in Michigan tonight, 9 o'clock tip. And... Brian, I'm going to begin with this. I was just talking about Zach Eady, and you know, I'm hearing more and more that the combination of, and I mean this is no disrespect to Zach Eady, but the combination of this being a down draft year and the fact that people are now realizing that Zach Eady would be a safe draft pick, you know, a guy that you know, you got a pretty good idea what you're getting, and a guy that could play 10 years in the league, and he's a safe pick that for that reason, he may find his way into the top 20 or 15 in this year's draft. And I'm curious from what you know, Brian, and seeing Purdue in practice and other such things, does he have a little more range to his game that is not needed at Purdue, but that he could showcase a little bit in the process going into the league? Yeah, if you've seen him shoot around uh, after practice, you can see that he can shoot jumpers. It's just not the most logical thing for Purdue to do when you have this guy with this unbelievable advantage around the rim. But you can tell from his free throw form, too, that he's got great touch and he's got great uh, great shooting skills, great hand-eye coordination, stuff like that. That maybe is something that he can show people in the pre-draft process whenever that time comes. I don't think that's new. I think he would have done that last year, too. Um, but that's something maybe some, some NBA people down the line can explore Outside of that, he's just gotten a lot better. He's gotten a lot more mobile. Uh, he's gotten a lot better defensively. He's he's become a much better passer. Um, you know, things like that. He's become a really good defensive player, a better rim protector than he was earlier in, in the season. He's one of the best rebounders in the country. Rebounding typically translates from one level to the next. He's really played well in pick and roll, which obviously at the NBA level is a pretty big deal. Uh, I, I think he's shown people he's – got a little more there than uh, people would expect from a seven foot four, 300 pound guy. Um, I've always said about him as an NBA prospect is that don't draft him as a 21 year old draft him as a guy who's played basketball for seven years. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, an interesting combination between a guy who's played enough college basketball now to be ready to maybe help a good team as a late first round draft pick and somebody who should still have some remaining upside. So he has really helped himself here by coming back this year. And that's, uh, you know, something there's a certain stigma kind of attached to guys who come back for their senior years and things like that. And I know people who are not Purdue fans or, or, or dislike Purdue or, or, or jealous or whatever, like to throw out the whole, Oh, he's not going to play in the NBA stuff. Uh, the same way 
a lot of Purdue people did about Trace Jackson Davis, and they were wrong. But um, I think he definitely has a professional basketball future, whether that's at the N- in the NBA level or it's something he has to kind of work work his way up towards. I think he's really helped himself this year. With Zach Eady, the last three games, and sticking just on the college profile, not what we just asked, of course, with where he mocks to be in the NBA if he goes to the next level, but 93 points, 52 rebounds, 31 free throws over his last three. I'm sure you've seen this from Purdue Sports, only major college player to reach those marks in a three-game span. The last 25 years, what is left to expect from Zach Eady on a nightly basis when he makes those things that define a all-elite-level big man seem easy? What, what is left to expect from him on a nightly basis? Well, I think I think the big thing for him is winning this year. Uh, I think he's proven himself to be, you know, a great college player, the best college player in the country. I think, uh, you know, his margins for productivity are pretty slim at this point. When you know he he's putting up the sort of numbers he always puts up, um, I think he's ultimately going to be judged on what Purdue does as a team, and that's sort of the sort of the story of Purdue's season. And I genuinely think. He, he means it when he says a big part of the reason he came back was that. I think he was not particularly happy with the way last season ended, nor should he have been, nor was anyone else at Purdue. Um, but uh, I think that's kind of his focus, and ultimately I think that's kind of what defines what will be his last season at Purdue. Brian, in the last 35 years, more dominant Purdue basketball players, Zach Eady, Glenn Robinson, go. Uh, well, I was in high school when Glenn Robinson was at Purdue, so uh, I, I can't really speak to him from a firsthand perspective. But I know of his reputation. I, I watched a couple games on TV when I was a kid. Uh, I'm dating myself there, but um, I can't imagine there being uh, anything more dominant than Zach Eady. It's just there's just this baseline of productivity with him where it's just so suffocating to opponents. What he does on the offensive glass the physical toll he takes on people, the fouls he pins on people, the fact that he just he makes his free throws when he shoots 15 of them a game, you know, stuff like that. It, it's got to be the most hopeless matchup I've ever seen as a college basketball um, observer. Uh, I never saw Shaq play college basketball or anything like that, but I would imagine uh, it was something kind of along those lines. Glenn Robinson was an unbelievable player, obviously one of the greatest players probably to ever play college basketball. Um, but I, I, I just think the sheer impossibility of matching up with Zach Eady probably uh, takes even more of a toll on people than just simply the rebounding and the scoring and the, and the block shots and things like that. So um, I would have to say Zach Eady, I guess. By the way, on a total side note, buddy of mine played college basketball, played against Purdue, knew Glenn from AAU ball, and they're warming up before the game, and Glenn comes walking up to him. And they were AAU teammates. So he's like, oh, Glenn. Like, you know, thought it was cool that Glenn Robinson's coming up to say hi, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Glenn Robinson walks up to him and goes, hey, man, just so you know, you're going to tell your grandkids about the butt kicking I'm about to lay on you. And I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> but, like, he had just an intimidation factor about him that was yeah. just so, yeah. like, whoa. Like, just, you know, just he had such a – he was such a dog, man. I mean, that dude was – he was something. But, yeah. listen, let me ask you, Brian. Brian Newbert, our guest, and you're totally right about, about Edie – you know, Purdue's game goes starts with Edie and goes inside out, right? And yeah. 
I don't know that now you're going to have nights where Zach Eady has an off night. But if you do, I thought last year some of the areas where Purdue would stumble would be if all of a sudden things got off kilter outside of that, they kind of didn't know how to rebound or which way to go with it. Do you think Purdue now has a definitive offensive pecking order where it is very clear to them so that, like, in other words, it's not guys standing around waiting for one thing to happen, that everybody, that there's more fluidity to it? Does it feel that that is more the case than a year ago? Yeah, kind of going back to the Glenn Robinson comparison, I think they were very different players. Uh, Obviously, they go about their business very differently, but I think also, you know, Glenn was in a situation where he he carried that team. He was beat the guy, whereas Purdue now has built an infrastructure around Zach Eady where you've got shooters who are making shots this year, and that was that was, that was the big issue last year. You've got a point guard who can now really, really unlock a lot of what Zach Eady does, too, uh, in pick-and-roll offense, things like that. I think the biggest thing for Purdue coming into the season, and this has changed kind of through the course of this season because the turnovers are, are the thing Purdue's got to get under control. They've got to make sure every game that's not something that goes sideways on them. But coming into this season, the biggest key to Purdue's success was making shots. I know that sounds like oversimplification, but that is so important to guiding how people defend Zach Eady to really, really leveraging what Zach Eady does, giving him the space he needs, things like that. And Purdue shot the ball great this year. I think that probably could have been expected, uh, given that, um, you know, those two sophomore guards have more experience this year, you know, things like that. Uh, But that's been the biggest difference from last year to this year from an offensive perspective. I think Fletcher Lawyer's been a much better player this year than he was last year. He was pretty good last year. Um, Obviously, Braden Smith's taken a jump from being really good as a freshman to a borderline All-American. You know, he's he's um, he's handing out nine assists damn near every game. And over the 20 years prior to this one that I've covered Purdue, I can probably count the number of nine assist games I've seen uh, on two hands. Uh, there haven't been very many of them. Uh, and he's just doing it every game. And it's kind of one of those things you sort of take for granted. Like, he's just having this, this season where – uh, it's not like anything that really Purdue's used to seeing. Uh, you know, you've got scoring options at the floor now. Trey Kaufman-Renz in there for a reason uh, to try to get some high-low stuff going with Ed. You know, Mason Gillis makes shots. Um, you've got some opportunistic shooters, too. I just think Purdue's got a great offensive infrastructure around Ed, but also one that has not uh, – does not lose sight of the fact that the ball needs to go inside to number 15. And uh, I think that's probably the most important part of it. I didn't mention Lance Jones. What he's given them in transition has really, really completed this team too, among many other things he's given them. So this is the most complete uh, offensive arsenal I think Purdue's had uh, in its modern era. And I think that they've had some pretty good ones. You know, there's a year with Caleb Swanigan, Vince Edwards, and Dakota Mathias and all those guys. And those were some really good offensive teams. I just think this team kind of has it all right now. Brian Newbert covers all things Purdue for goldenblack.com, joins us. Last three all wins, 88 points a game, 49% from the field. And you mentioned the key one, making shots, 39% from beyond the arc. That's all since that, lo- that's all since that loss to Nebraska. 
What's changed over that stretch, if anything, in your mind, or are they just back on script to where they wanted to be to start the year? Well, I don't think anything went off script. I think they just got kind of buzzsawed on the road, as tends to happen to people sometimes in the Big Ten when you leave your home arena. Tominaga did what what Tominaga does for Nebraska, just made a bunch of impossible threes. Um, and uh, they shot out of their minds. And uh, I think that um, you just have to kind of bake that into a Big Ten season every now and then happen every couple of games, uh, something like that. But I, is that the way to I beat think, them now then, Brian? In terms of, you mentioned, they got to make shots. They're clearly a better shooting team than they were a year ago. If they shoot like they have, if they play like they're capable of, is the only way to for them to miss out on what they want to do this year, which is make a Final Four, win a national championship, is the formula outshoot them, outscore them, but you're going to have to match what they do offensively? Well, yeah, you're going to have to score a lot of points, but you're also going to have to turn them over. Uh, I think the one thing that directly correlates you know, to Purdue not having success is turnovers. And sometimes it, it, it snowballs on them a little bit. The two games they've lost uh, at Northwestern in double overtime, I think it was double overtime, and then at Nebraska was both of those teams shot really well, but also Purdue uh, you know, turned the ball over more than it would have liked. But also the, the turnovers were really impactful turnovers, I think. I can't remember which one's which, but I think it was one of those games had 20 points off turnovers for the opponent. The other one had 19, and I think Purdue's a better defensive team than they were a year ago. They're an okay defensive team. They're not a great defensive team, but when they're getting 20 points off your mistakes, um, that's that takes them from good defensive team to very mediocre defensive team. And if you just cut that number in half, it's going to be really, really hard to outscore Purdue. Um, so I think the turnovers are still the biggest thing Purdue's got to got to be constantly aware of. And because it's going to be consistent scoring the ball, it's too good an offensive team not to. They're always going to have an advantage on the glass. They're going to get back a lot of their misses because they're a dominant offensive rebounding team. They should have an advantage at the foul line. It's just a matter of not giving offense to their opponents. And uh, that's kind of the, the one thing that is really, really correlated with the games they've lost this season and the games they've struggled in, uh, which there haven't been very many of them, but going back to like Honolulu, you know, things like that. So the turnovers are kind of the biggest thing, if you ask me. Hey, Brian, can you give me a, um, and by no means, you know, a lot can change between now and nine o'clock, don't get me wrong, but, you know, for people here, we heard a lot yesterday about the fact that there could be some freezing rain and almost like an ice storm north of here. Uh, I had to go up to the Frankfurt area earlier today, and it was okay then. It was mostly rain. But for people that might be coming up from the Indy area that are listening and are going to be coming to Purdue tonight, uh, taking on Michigan, what is how are things looking right now up in Lafayette? Uh, the freezing rain hit last night. It's all melted. It's just wet now here. Uh, I can't speak to the whole county. I have just driven um, kind of around the area around my house, but it's all just wet. The roads... The main roads seem fine. I can't speak to the back roads, but right. um, I don't know if there's more freezing rain coming tonight. I certainly hope not, um, but uh, I haven't checked the forecast either. But right now it's just wet, uh, at least in terms of the main thoroughfares through town and things like that. So I don't think there's anything you'd be concerned about right now. You know, as we know, in Indiana this time of year, things can change real quick. Totally, yeah, uh, especially up there, right? I, I mean, yep. Right. Uh, so just kind of wet right now. Brian Newbert, goldenblack.com. Appreciate it as always, man. And we will be looking to see what you have in terms of your coverage after tonight's battle, Michigan and Purdue up in West Lap. Yeah, appreciate it, man. 
All right, fellas. Thanks for having me. All right, Brian Newbert again, goldenblack.com. That game on Peacock tonight, right? That is correct. Noah Eagle, Robbie Hummel on Peacock. Robbie Hummel does every game, doesn't he? Like Looks every like college basketball point. game. Like, I don't know if you know this or not, but tomorrow he's doing Texas, San Antonio, and New Mexico State. <laughs> I thought you just met strictly with Peacock. It appears that way. I see him. I it does like seem like he's, you know, he's the rising star of college basketball game analysts, right? I mean, his name. Yeah. And he does a really good job. And, and you know what's funny? I, I saw, like somebody said to me, they're like, can we, Robbie Hummel clearly uh, doing the Indiana game was favoring Wisconsin because he's a Purdue guy. And I'm like, yeah. look, Robbie Hummel, I think he chose Purdue over Indiana. I remember when he was in high school, I mean, it was back and forth, back and forth. I think he, he has a great respect for Indiana too. I mean, I, you know, I think he's pretty objective. Um, and, and people that are, for that matter, Indiana fans would be really disappointed if they knew how many guys that played for Bob Knight in Indiana are fans of Purdue now. Not, not to be, not because they don't like Indiana. I'm just saying, cause they love Matt. They grew up with, you know, they played with painter. They know painter well and have a great respect for Purdue. I, I know plenty of guys that, were those that Indiana fans were cheering on when they were taking on Purdue that now those guys themselves are like, yeah, man, I really want to see Purdue play tonight. I really hope Purdue does well, et cetera, et cetera. Stephen Holder going to join us about 12 minutes from now. We will get the latest on the Colts from Stephen Holder. We'll do that at the top of the hour. You're listening to Query and Company here on 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Look at you, Ed. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Spinning the hits on request, right? So this came about, this particular song, if we were to do like some sort of a pathology on how it came to be that this random 1982 song would be playing on this program with Eddie Garrison at the controls. You can let it breathe a little bit there, Eddie. Todd Meyer, our executive producer, in a past life was a, he'll tell you that he simply worked like as a bouncer in bars, but in reality, he was a uh, huge enthusiast of new wave music. Guy had hair like flock of seagulls walking around, old photos of him, that kind of thing. Looks like Adam Ant. And there was a song that was stuck in my head. You ever have this happen, Jimmy, where like you get a tune stuck in your head and you're like, I don't know where I heard this or what it is. Yes. So I had this song stuck in my head for like three weeks couldn't figure out what it was but i knew that i thought it was like a new wave 80s band you know madness or maybe not even new wave but maybe like the not the cult but you know oingo boingo I, you know couldn't place it you couldn't place where you'd heard it or you couldn't place who wrote it both thank you okay. both all i knew is that the the beat to it and i'm terrible at singing but i'm gonna i'm gonna like hum it here or like you know mimic it you ready that was running through my head for like weeks i just imagine you like you mentioned the other day when you you know you got to get your gym time in there and you're just doing whatever your workout routine is and that song just pops in and i and then i couldn't i couldn't get it straight 
right? I couldn't figure it out. So I called Todd Meyer because, and he corrected me, he was a bartender, not a bouncer. My apologies. So Todd Meyer, I called him and I go, here it is. And so he's now on the case. He couldn't figure it out. So anyway, we, we found out. I ended up calling Laura Steele, and and that's like posting something on 465. And and she got a hold of DJ Skids, who does the JMV takeover, and he was able to determine. Thank goodness, Chris Skidmore was able to determine that the song that I was sitting there trying to figure out, and I mean, absolutely like racking my brain over. Um, the name of the song CanCon, I think, is is the it's a it's a 1990s. Uh, song that I think 1990s when it came out it was a DJ mix called I Beg Your Pardon that's the name of the song so we got the mystery solved but when Todd Meyer came in today I told him I go hey the name of the answer to the song is Con Can that's actually the name of the artist Con Can I Beg Your Pardon and he said oh I thought maybe it was and then he referenced the song that Eddie just played so that's how that all came to be that was a really long explanation, yeah, but the, the core of it is we found out that Todd was a bartender for 17 Since years. we're throwing out random facts, uh, the Cook family has gotten on me. I can't believe I blanked it. Uh, Rich Cook, if you missed earlier in the show when Jake was talking about jury duty, my brother's a longtime attorney in his own right. Uh, Purdue is where he studied where he studied undergrad before heading to Valpo and making sure I was right. State prosecutor in Lake County, federal prosecutor in South Bend. A lot of good stories federal from prosecutor. Rich Cook. Yes. Yep. Of what kind of crime? Well, other than federal crimes, Jake, there were a number of trials that he was involved in encompassing crimes such as conspiracy, counterfeiting, mail fraud, wire fraud. That's right. I went to his website directly to make sure I wasn't wrong anymore. Illegal drug manufacturing, racketeering, murder for hire, the whole nine, Jake, the whole nine. Racketeering. I've always wondered what racketeering is. It's just funny business, right? I always get it confused with money laundering. So maybe I'm. Well, money laundering is a things. form of racketeering, is it not? Or that's is racketeering think, right. a form of that's money laundering? That's a great laundering? question. All you could have had had you made the call to Rich Cook Law for your pro bono so, consultation. So if you, just for here's the clear. thing. If you're opening up Los Pollos Hermanos and or a car wash, there's a good chance that Rich Cook is on the case. With uh, Gus Fring? That's right. Um, well, was this before or after the incident? Who knows? That's right. Ringing the bell, right? By the way, I... You want to know an unpopular opinion? Always down for an unpopular opinion. I thought Breaking Brad, Breaking Bad, excuse me. I thought it was fabulous, like anybody. I mean, who didn't like Breaking Bad? It's a great show. But The Wire is better, number one. And number two, I thought Breaking Bad was fabulous, but went like one season too long. It kind of started to jump the shark after a while. I had that happen with The Walking Dead. Where you were just like another okay. AMC show, and it was yeah. like, okay, wait, no, they're back in a confined space with zombies around them. Okay, what? Where are we? Where are we taking this to? R- right. It, it kind of to me, and maybe I'm alone in this, but with Breaking Bad, it just kind of was like, uh, okay, I mean, I'm, I'm, we're good now, right? Yeah. Uh, Stephen Older covers the Colts. ESPN next. There it is. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. This baby, the 1988 DJ Mix tunes of ConCan, taking Stephen Holder back to the night that he sat and enjoyed too short at the Vogue with yours truly. <laughs> 
He joins us now on the program. Stephen, how are you? I'm doing well. Good times. Good times. Yes. One of the worst concerts I've ever been to, truth be told, but it was fun, right? <laughs> the idea was fun, right? <laughs> it was. Hey, um, I, so, hey, by the way, I in, in keeping with our, our tradition of, of recent weeks, I caught a, a portion of the show earlier, and I, as I always do, I catch the tail end of conversation, so I never know what the hell you guys are talking about, mm-hmm, yeah. but uh, I'm always intrigued. Now, is your radio broken? Is that how you keep stumbling upon us, by the way? <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's supposed to it's supposed to have all this technology stuff and I don't know how to connect, you know, this old That's telephone. Right. <laughs> no, I you know what? Listen, you guys you put the, the YouTube link on Twitter and I sit at this computer all day and like every twenty minutes I get bored of what the hell I'm doing and I just have to like get off of what I've been working on and, and scroll. So I, I scrolled and I was like, Ah, let me see what they're talking about. I saw the link. And I heard the jury duty conversation. So anyway, that was that was I was I was intrigued. Let's put it that way. So allow me to ask you this, because I was actually going to ask you this: Have you been Stephen Holder selected for jury duty? I have, in fact, and it was very strange. This was, was a very long time ago. I would say almost like twenty years ago since I've actually done it, and I remember kind of trying to get out of it like not not with like a lie but you asked that question like if you're a member of the media do they just say ah, get out of here well i can attest they do not <laughs> because i tried that and so i tried to give them the the whole line well you know in my line of work i deal with lots of attorneys and i deal with you know court proceedings all the time which is true and they were like yeah uh-huh yeah whatever get in line and it, when they were doing the jury selection, it, it didn't even phase them one bit. So did you get, um, did you actually serve on a I mean, you got picked for a jury? I got picked. I got picked for the jury. So um, it was and here, it was a civil trial, though, not a criminal trial. Let me be clear. Um, and, and I will tell you, I as we're sitting there, I think it was a two or three day trial. And as I'm sitting through the proceedings and listening to the testimony. What I, I knew the, the concept was it was, I believe, an insurance company versus um, a medical provider. They were fighting over like a bill or something. And throughout this this case, you know, me and the other jurors, we're thinking, OK, this has got to be like hundreds of thousands of dollars because they never tell you that they never dealt with like the amount of money we were talking about until the very end. And then they dropped it on us. And it was the most minute ridiculous, petty amount of money. I was like, you wasted three days of my life for this nonsense. So in other words, you got, you got paid more than actually the winner of the trial for being on the jury duty, right? Well, by the time they paid the attorneys, I I have to wonder. And so ultimately I wondered why they did that, right? Why would you go to court and fight this and go through all this trouble? Yes, it was, it was principle and precedent. There were probably other, other claims that they were fighting over, you know, so I, I didn't realize it at the time, but, you know, in retrospect, I think that's what it was. So anyway, um, yeah, that's what you have to look forward now, to. Now, here's the uh, other thing, and I want to know if this will eliminate me. I, I'll agree to be on a jury, but I have to be the four person. I, I, it, like, <laughs> right? Oh, well, listen, that's a great point because I'm, I'm going to tell you, our four person was a complete moron, okay? <laughs> and, all the more reason I'm qualified. <laughs> 
Well, <laughs> no, you, you actually are very thoughtful and, and, and analytical, probably too much so, <laughs> but whatever. Uh, and you need someone who can actually like put a sentence together because I don't want to be there all day, man. Like we get in the room and, and frankly, we all kind of agreed. And there was this, there was a couple people who were like, well, I don't know. And the poor person like couldn't get control of this to the point where I was like, all right, look, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> and I'm like, two of us, me and another person kind of like usurped the power right, from the right. poor person. Well, the see, the, then, then in that idiot. case, here's the thing. You ain't serving on my jury because <laughs> we're going to arm wrestle over this. And I'm not – no, I'm the four person. You Have a seat. That, you know, that's how it's going to be, right? Anyway. I mean, it, it must look good on a resume, right? Jury four person. <laughs> you, you, it's got to count for something. I have more embellished things on my resume, I can assure you. I see you more as bailiff query. I would now like that, to see that role. I, I'd be fine with that too. Uh, you know, again, Todd Meyer. Uh, okay, Stephen hey, I, Holder. One, one quick thing, though. Yep. Last thing, because I know no one cares about this, but um, I had a, I had an editor. My editor once back in the day, he got called for a, a federal trial and got picked for a drug trafficking case that lasted four months. Whoa. Okay, four months. So yeah. Yeah. So do you get do you get sequestered at that point? No, no, he, he actually would come to work in the evenings and, oh, and like, man. you know, he'd come in the newsroom like at five o'clock and work for like four hours. Cause he was, he was like, I got, I got stuff to do. <laughs> so yeah, that's rough, was, man. That's rough. Crazy. Hey, yeah. um, Steven, let's begin with this. And I know you were on with John yesterday and, and I can't imagine that, that things have changed, but mm-hmm. I do want to address it for those that may not have heard yesterday, you know, obviously we know that, that Jim Mersey has, you know, we haven't seen or heard from him since mid-December and the Colts have let it known that he is battling a respiratory illness. Uh, is there any update on the owner of the Colts? There is not. Um, that's the last uh, concrete statement or indication we've gotten. Um, the one thing I would say is I was trying to put this together in my head. I think the the last time we we have some indication of, of Jim Ursay's well being uh, was was that Pittsburgh Steelers game, which I think was what the December eighteenth, uh, sixteenth or eighteenth, the eighteenth, yeah. I believe. Yes, and so and and so when whenever this latest medical episode happened, I'm not sure of the exact date, but I know it was not. It was not uh, when the Colts put the original statement out. It had happened uh, quite a bit earlier than that, is what I'm saying. So what's the point? What I'm saying is he's been in this concerning state for, for quite some time. And that is what, that's what doesn't sit well with me. You know, the longer this goes on without some sign of, of, optimism or, or good news you would hope you would hear some good news if there was um the longer we go without that the more i think my level of concern goes up so all we can do is just wait and, and hope for the best here steven also for those that may not be aware can you kind of take us through steven holder espn.com when the season ends you know we we obviously know that the the season from an nfl standpoint continues but for the team itself what does take place? Like, what have the last couple of weeks looked like? And, and what is the next 
kind of order of business. If you are a player for the Colts, you are in the facility. When, how often, when, you know, or is it literally everybody cleans their locker out and it's like, okay, see you in three months. What does the process right now look like? Yeah, so for the players, you've got exit interviews. Uh, depending on, on how the team structures theirs, you know, that can be a couple days worth or it can be all, that, you know, that one Monday after the season. It, it just kind of depends on the team. I, I think Shane Steichen was trying to meet with everyone on that Monday Um but then, you know, Chris Ballard, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes meets with guys individually. So anyway, let's say a period of two or three days, they knock all that out. Then they scatter. They're gone. Um, you know, some guys live in far-flung places, so they go home to their hometowns. Uh, some guys are here, but they're all, for the most part, laying pretty low. You can, if you're local, you can come in and, and use the facility to work out and, and do those kinds of things. But generally – there's nothing in the way of, of coaching uh, instruction and, and that kind of thing happening once your season ends. In fact, that's, that's not really even permitted. So uh, for the coaches, it's an opportunity to, to kind of take a step back and, and do evaluation. So, you know, just like all of us get evaluated at, at our jobs you know, on an annual basis, it's the same thing. They're doing reports on players uh, it's kind of a reverse scouting report. You know, how did the player perform as opposed to, you know, how, how do we like this player we might sign or draft? It, it, this is the reverse. You're looking back at the player, how he performed, did he grow, et cetera. Uh, what's next? What are, the, what are the expectations for that player moving forward? All of that's being evaluated, uh, and that's on the position coaches. That's a process that they may, in fact, still be going through. So, um yeah, it's actually, you know, it's an important time. And then and then pretty soon here, uh, I don't have the dates in front of me. I think the Senior Bowl might be next week, I think. So that's the next order of business coming up as well. Stephen Holder joins us, covers the Colts nationally for ESPN. Stephen, we are just under a month away from that, what, three, four-week window where clubs may designate a franchise tag onto a player I know that we're probably still a little bit too early in terms of what stages conversations or when those conversations begin with Michael Pittman Jr. And there's maybe other options if they wanted to use the tag as well with how many expiring contracts they have. How quickly from when that starts on February 20th to when it ends on March 5th, if they were to use it, do you expect the Colts to act with a tag regardless who the player is? Yeah, I. well, I think we'd have to start with with Michael Pittman Jr., obviously. And right. I, I think here's what you can count on. You know, we don't know what exactly, what conversations specifically have taken place, but here's what you can count on. The Colts have been game planning this for months, <laughs> probably more than that, frankly, going back more than a year. They've been game planning because that's what good teams do. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, planning to send your kids to college, right? You don't get to three weeks before graduation and you're like, you know, honey, we got to come up with some money, right? You know, <laughs> so it's the same thing. They've been game planning this for a while and they have, I'm, I'm sure they have, I know how they work. I know how Chris Ballard and his staff work. They have uh, discussed different types of structures for that contract, you know, lengths, all of that has been, has been talked about ad nauseum already, I assure you. 
I have no doubt. Some of it may have already even been discussed with Pittman's representation. Now, Pittman told us recently uh, that he, he decided, actually both sides came to an agreement that they would not negotiate during the season. He didn't want that to be a sort of a distraction. So, so it's possible they haven't really had any, any concrete conversations for quite some time based on that agreement. But again, as I said, both sides in this, the agent, uh, the representation, and the team have already been thinking about how they're going to approach it. So, so when they do start those conversations, um, it's not going to be, you know, one of those things about, Hey, so what are we thinking? They already know what they're thinking. Like they, they have already gone through that. So to your question, how soon I, I think they would be wise to try to get it done. And, and if you can't, then in the 11th hour, then you make the move with the franchise tag. That's how I see that playing out, just because I think there's good faith on both sides. But there's also the, the other reality here, which is Pittman being on record saying, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing what, what free agency looks like for me. And, you know, is that a negotiating ploy or is that a true statement where he really, truly wants to test the market? I, I guess we'll find out. ESPN Stephen Holder is our guest. Stephen, we were reading a lot of tea leaves, as were you, as were many, with Chris Ballard's end-of-season press conference after the loss to the Texans. And the most notable quote, Jake brought it up a couple times, was his pause when referencing Alec Pierce. Regardless of what that says about Pierce or not, it would be clear that they're in some way open to the idea that many have called for, myself included, adding weapons for Anthony Richardson to make his de facto rookie season easier. As we stand on the onset of... The countdown still continuing to free agency and the tag deadline I brought up. What is more likely an approach for them to take? Go take a swing on an additional piece in free agency at the wide receiver position or do it with a premium draft pick this year? Well, I, I think it depends on how the board stacks up. I know this is a cop-out answer, but but I don't totally know yet because you know we're still in, in the season. But well, here's what I'd say. If the board stacks up as such that it's starting to look, by the way, like there are some premium wide receivers um, in that, you know, top half of the first round and, and the Colts are right in the middle. So if that's the case, it seems like there's a, I don't know what the number is, but like maybe a, a group of four or five wide receivers that are candidates to go um, in that top half of the first round. That's a pretty good number. And, and so it seems to me that's a very deep position where you can get a, a very good player without taking the first guy at that position, you know, maybe even the second or third guy. And so that tells me even at number 15, you're going to get, you know, if you looked at the wide receivers, there's a good chance you will get a very premium wide receiver. Even at that point, you don't necessarily have to be in the top five. Um, might be less so with the pass rushers, though. You know, this is again the, the way the way the draft prognostications look right now are never going to be the same as they look in in March or April. So don't hold me to anything we're saying now, but just based on what we have, uh, just based on the information we know right now, it, it seems like possibly the value is in the wide receivers with that first pick. That being said, I have always felt like. The I, I talked to um, someone about this. Maybe, maybe Jane V and I were talking about this. I, I just think that the ability to or the, the 
the trying to get a premium pass rusher in anything outside of the first round of the NFL draft is incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. I think you have, I don't know, I can't prove this and I'd have to run some numbers, but my gut tells me that you have, a, you have better odds of finding a high-end wide receiver outside of that range than you do a high-end edge rusher. You know, that's just where they tend to go. So, so I think for the Colts, I mean, I like their pass rush, and their pass rush was very good, you know, all things considered. But, you know, if you're looking for a true freak pass rusher, um, you tend to have to get them there in that top half of the first round. Stephen Holder's our guest. Stephen, you had mentioned that you were working on your computer when you needed a break in order to listen to this fine program. So the question begs to be asked, uh, you're working on what? Oh, I've got some unrelated stuff to the Colts, stuff unrelated to the Colts. I I got some, a couple of Pro Bowl things I'm working on. Um, I, I get to go to Orlando and get out of the cold next week to cover the Pro Bowl. I, I never thought I'd get on a plane to go cover a flag football game, but here we are. Um, but – I'm not complaining. <laughs> it's just fine. Uh, so I've got some pieces related to that. Um, I actually also have another piece that I'm working on that I'm actually kind of interested in. It's it's not for everybody, but um, it, it's a piece about how players handle concussion symptoms. So I don't know when this is going to run. I probably shouldn't even be talking about it. They'll get mad at me. But, you know, what I've learned, like we saw this with Anthony Richardson this year, you know, he, he had that concussion against Houston, and no, it wasn't diagnosed. It was Anthony saying to the team, you know, something's not right. And, and Ryan Kelly had this happen a couple times this year. So what we're learning now is this is a league-wide thing. What we're learning is that more and more players are the ones having to step up and say, hey, I'm not right. Now, that is not, that is not uh, an indication that, that, that the NFL is not doing its job. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, and and this is something that the league officials agree with, they can't diagnose every concussion just by outward symptoms. You just can't. So, So the player has to be able to say, okay, you know what? The consequences here might be that I might miss a game or two, but I have to be mature enough to say, I'm not right, and, and for my family's sake and for my own future's sake, I have to get out of this game. So I think it's a really interesting topic because not everybody, you know, has – not everybody has the same comfort level in terms of where they are in their career or where they are uh, in their standing with the team. So there's a lot of wheels turning, you know, when you've got to say, hey, I, I might have to leave this game. So anyway – kind of a meaty topic but that's the the genesis of it who's going to coach atlanta next year huh. I, i'm really interested to see how that turns out i mean because they just apparently requested more interviews for a couple of different player people right and they've had yeah belichick in twice right i mean this is this is total speculation right but but if, don't you think with bill belichick you've got a lot to talk about like it's not just okay does he want the job? But although that's a big part of the conversation, but there's also the conversation about, okay, like who's going to, who's going to have say over this or that. And 
uh, you know, all these kinds of things. And I mean, do you, you want to hire Bill Belichick and then find out that he doesn't want any of your players or he doesn't want any, um, he doesn't, he doesn't like your quarterback or he doesn't like this. And then, you know, I mean, are you just going to tell him no on all those things? No, I mean, you hired Bill Belichick. You're going to have to kind of let him do what he wants to do. I think there's a lot to work through if you hire Bill Belichick. I'm not saying you shouldn't hire him. I'm just saying it's, it's an interesting and a layered conversation. It has layers to it. You know, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear how this all plays out. I, I don't know t- who's going to coach him next year to, to answer your question. I have no a tinfoil hat on it, Stephen. <laughs> Again, the best part about tinfoil hat, I don't need to prove it. This is just reckless speculation of my thoughts on them bringing in for a second interview and why they haven't made the hire yet. I believe ownership wants Bill Belichick. I think that the front office realizes if they hire him, their jobs become meaningless because he's going to want to make all the decisions. <laughs> and so they're trying to know we got to bring in more people here and more people there instead of making the hire for Bill Belichick. Even though I do agree with you on the fact that if there's not a quarterback in place there, how is it different than what happened in New England at the end? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, kind, of, you're kind of on the same page I am, I think, just in terms of it, it's, it's kind of complicated. Hiring Bill Belichick is not a cut and dry thing. It, it's exactly right. You're exactly right about, you know, who's it? Terry Fontenot, I think, is their GM. Um, you know, <laughs> he's probably sitting back thinking, all right, Mr. Blank, uh, what does this mean for me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I would be too. Now, that being said, Belichick, the GM, got Belichick, the coach, in a lot of trouble in recent years. And that is something you also have to square. That, that complicates this even more. Their draft picks have been awful. Okay, awful. I'm not saying they're all a product of of Bill Belichick's decisions, but in large part, they are in many cases. So I I don't know. You have to square all of that. Defensive mastermind, greatest coach in history, all that's true. But I don't know, man. It's it's a complicated scenario to me. Okay, here we go, Stephen. You ready for the Jake Query prediction cycle here? Let's do it. I don't know who's going to end up in Atlanta. That I think Atlanta is a, a curious situation because they don't have a quarterback. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, and that I just their think they're a lot. Of, by the way, is not bad. I, I, I don't. I, 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 I like their team. I would agree with that. And, and but I just I feel like there are a lot of coaches that would like to go somewhere that has some answer at long term in the quarterback position, especially 100%. especially Belichick, right? I mean, he's going to go and be like, look, I don't want to start over totally. So here we go. Uh, L.A. Chargers is going to be Jim Harbaugh, right? Looks like. Sounds like, yeah. Okay. Um, what other jobs are open here? You got Atlanta. Uh, what's the other one? Uh, I, I think Tennessee is making like, – Callahan is, sounds like they're close, or if it's not done already. Okay. Here, here's um, my – Seattle. I'm, I'm going with this. I'm, I'm, I have nothing to base this on, Stephen. I just like to throw stuff out there, and then if it comes to fruition, I really brag about it. And if it doesn't, everybody just forgets. Uh, Mike Vrabel to Seattle. You know that I could see it. I could see it. I could. You know, frankly, he's got a little bit in common with Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll has gotten a, a fair amount out of that team the last couple of years, uh, where they're a team that that kind of needs some reworking and and need some upgrades, they still kind of managed to get a lot out of them. Well, that's all Mike Vrabel ever did in Tennessee. <laughs> I mean, did he ever have a roster you look at and say, you know, that team right there, i tell you, they could win it all. No one ever said that about the Titans. And then at the end, they're always 
They're always in the playoffs. They're always winning the division. So I don't know. It's, it's I could see that. Do you think some of the – look, I like Nick Sirianni. Stephen Holder, our guest from ESPN.com, I like Nick Sirianni a, a great deal. I mean, I don't know him yeah. the way that you do, but in the times that I've met him, he seems like a pretty good dude, and I think he's a good coach. But yeah. he also lost two coordinators, and all of a sudden the wheels fell off. Did that start to illuminate a little bit some areas where Nick Sirianni might have had a little bit of an inflated confidence? Well, it it certainly undermines you a little bit, and it makes you have to go into a little bit of prove-it mode. You know what I'm saying? Like if he comes back next year and, and he can't get that thing headed in the right direction, it's almost like – man, you know, it, it, everything kind of gets laid bare a little bit. You know, people are going to think you're kind of a fraud. And and I say that as someone who loves Nick, and I know Nick very well. Um, I, I said this in a, in a couple of other interviews. I, I think Nick is the kind of guy who was perfect for that team when he got hired. And so they were a team that was – you know, that was not really, they didn't really have an identity at the time, but he kind of brought, he kind of came in and gave them like an edge uh, and an identity. And, you know, so he has that sort of edge to him and his team, I think took that on for sure. The problem is that plays well when you're winning, when you're losing, you can't get up there and talk a bunch of smack. Doesn't You can't get up there Monday morning team, inter, team uh, meeting and say, guys, we just lost by three touchdowns, but you know what? We're the damn Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So what, <laughs> you know? And I, I think that is kind of his MO and I don't know if you can go to that, you know, when, when it's not going well, uh, you kind of need a little different message sometimes. So it, it's tricky. It is tricky. And, and that's why not in this case yet, but that's why sometimes we talk about coaches' messages getting stale and, and running their course. It's because situations change. And so sometimes the message doesn't necessarily connect anymore because the situation has changed. That's just my theory. Uh, there are coaches who can, who can adapt and, and, and work well under all circumstances, but that's not true of everybody. ESPN Stephen Holder is our guest. Stephen, Chiefs-Bills this past weekend. Travis Kelsey scores a touchdown. They go to commercial. They pan to Jason Kelsey, shirtless, in the suite, <laughs> going nuts. You quote tweet, I can't wait to retire if this is what it looks like. Which I was like, yeah, I mean, that's that's the life, right? But then you follow it up with another tweet, promise to keep my shirt on, though. So what exactly of that are you excited <laughs> about retirement for? Well, it's more, the, it's more the idea, okay? Follow me here. It's the idea of not having to give a damn what anybody thinks, including, and most of all, your employer. I will tell you, I have to care a lot about what my employer thinks <laughs> because you don't want ESPN bosses calling you. What if I had a life where I didn't have to give one iota what those people thought? That would be pretty cool. But we're not there yet, so I digress. <laughs> Listen, my, like... I I don't want for like my place of employment to hear this and retire me early. I, I've had a couple that have tried to do that, but right. 
I don't know about you, Stephen. Like, I, I get the feeling that when I retire, like, I might be shirtless pounding beers, but it's going to be somewhere where there's like maybe a total of eight people in a twenty square mile area, right? <laughs> That's fair. That is fair. Yeah, I'm not that much of an extrovert. See, here's here's to do my it in thing, front Steve. of eighty thousand people. My, my thing is this: I keep saying to myself that my retirement's going to be twenty acres in Wyoming, right? Twenty acres, right. eight rescue dogs, um, and then. You know, a, a TV with cable television for Shannon that does not get Bravo Network, so I don't have to watch the Real Housewives crap ever again. This is a modern spin on Yellowstone. What are we doing here? Pretty much, okay, yeah. The right, only okay. problem is then I think about the fact that, like, if I if I have yet another heart attack and I'm in the middle of Wyoming, that is no bueno, right? <laughs> right. That's, right. That's the one thing that keeps coming to mind is like, well, they airlifted me three and a half hours to a regional hospital. You know, that's not good, right. <laughs> Is there a level one trauma center in the state of Wyoming? Is there one? Let somebody get on that. Have you, Stephen? Have you been to Wyoming? Let me ask you that. I have not. It's 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 one of the few I have left. I mean, yeah. I love it, love it, right? But my buddies and I drove through there one time, and we're like, so we're driving on this road trip, and we're like, you know, it's six hours in the middle. We're like, oh, we'll we'll stop and have dinner in Sheridan, Wyoming, because we'd heard of Sheridan, Wyoming. Like, it's got to be cool restaurants. We got there. There was like a Taco Bell and a Subway. It was like the size of Martinsville, right? <laughs> right. And, and and actually, about as diverse. Um, all right. Well, Stephen, appreciate the time, and we will. Continue to watch your coverage of the Colts in the offseason. What's well, a busy offseason for the Colts, of course, in the NFL as well at ESPN.com. Appreciate the time as always. Okay, heading out to make my travel plans to Wyoming. See there you go. I'm telling you. Laramie, though, man. I love me some Laramie, Wyoming, University of Wyoming. I like the the whole state of Wyoming. It's great. Uh, Devil's Tower is awesome. Never been. Oh, man, it's beautiful. I mean, it is beautiful. It is desolate. The, the Grand Tetons, I mean, it's are we going to add this to our massive road trip that we have planned? Indeed, go Pokes. Go Pokes, that's right, baby. Yeah, We're going to take us around to states we haven't thought oh, about man, going to. I, would, I mean, I'm telling you, there's something about, like, have you guys ever been to a place where when you visit it, and I know this sounds weird, but have you ever visited a place where immediately you feel so comfortable there, you're like, have I been here before? Like, I'm not saying like past life type stuff, but you're just like, you immediately just feel like you've always lived there. The two places for me that that's that I've felt that Disney are, World. How'd you know? <laughs> Not quite Disney. I've only you ready for this. Sure. I've only been to Disney World once. I was six. That that's fair. There was no Epcot yet. Mm. Waited in line for two hours to meet Mickey Mouse. Got up there right as we are on deck. My sister oh. and I are on deck to get our photo taken, and they come and they're like, "Sorry, kids, Mickey's got to meet Minnie for lunch." And my mom pushes me up there and goes, Just "Get in there!" So it's my sister and I, and then two other random kids standing with Mickey Mouse. And uh, they called it meeting for lunch back in the day. <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> Seattle and Wyoming, the two places that like immediately, I was like, "I've been here before," right? I just knew in where a everything was. Area or like when you got off the no, plane? like well, Seattle, we drove into okay. it, um, but Wyoming as well. Like this year, and I had been to Wyoming once 25 years ago, but like Byron and I road tripped and went to Wyoming and just immediately, it was like I knew where everything was. Oh, yeah, go up here and take a ride. And I'm like, wait a minute. I've never been here before. It was weird. Laramie's cool, though. It's not the most beautiful college campus, but Laramie and Wyoming's beautiful. Uh, we'll continue the conversation. We're way over. Query and company here, 93.5107.5 The Fan. Did you guys do? Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Do a lot of bowling in high school? I actually college. just went on Sunday. It's great, isn't it? 
Every time I go bowling, two things happen. Number one, I think like, why do I not do this more? Because it's great fun. And number two, you're going to laugh when I say this. How many games, when you go bowling with friends, how many games do you do? Um, Three. See, I think that's about the max. Before, you guys ready to completely laugh here? Does your arm get sore by like the third? No, it's not my arm. Your hand? It's my thumb. Like well, the, yeah, I mean, from, yeah, yeah, from the from the grip, right? Yeah, same thing. Yeah, I guess same thing, sure. right? Or not same thing, but yeah, you start to feel it. Is what I'm getting at. I've become more of a fan of duck pin bowling. Shout out to uh, pins over by uh, Bottle Works area. All those nice renovations they did a couple years ago. They're they're a little bit faster games. It's a you know it's a, it's a smaller lane. It's obviously you're not using a big bowling ball. It's a smaller duck pin ball, but. Those games are really, really fun where you can play like five or six of them versus maybe two or three with... Well, that seems bowling. to diminish the fabulous prize we have to give away now, doesn't it? I Eddie? totally undercut it. I forgot we had a promo. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that. That's on me. Shoot. But bowling Duncan is way better. Bowling, bowling in general... Fun. Forget everything I just said. Regular bowling, honestly, <laughs> but, is a lost art. And for those that don't know... Uh, duck pin bowling's harder, I think. There's only one place, Eddie, that we would ever go bowling of that nature, <laughs> which is the art of gods, correct? Royal pin, royal, exactly. royal. Bowling, bowling. Totally, yes. lost, totally lost the sheet. That's on me. <laughs> Can we, we need a pitcher of this beer over in lane three, please. <laughs> order 672, your order's ready. <laughs> oh, this so is what why do we I have need to, to give away, show prep. Um, It's a prize pack to which lucky caller, whatever number you guys pick, will receive two hours of free bowling and you will also receive two passes all week to the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open? Yes. And that's from Royal Pen? Yes. And how do you get involved? You just got to call in. What number are we going with? That's 239 1070. Obviously, the area code is 317. Uh, by the way, this isn't damage control. This is from the bottom of my heart. Single greatest radio jingle. Is the Royal Pin jingle. Oh, there's no doubt. It's hands Royal down. Pin, it's not close. Bowling, bowling. Yes. Yeah, no doubt. Now, the Puccini's one strong, too, though. Correct. Because people hear it, and they're like, You're not getting out Puccini's of Puccini's pizza. Should I go pasta. with line three since we're all Puccini. turkeys? What's that? Should I go with line three since we're all turkeys? <laughs> good. good. There you go. Do we ha- are we actually getting calls? We're going to put somebody roulette style on the air. We're gonna They're going to have to answer a show trivia question. Okay. You've got okay. five callers, so pick quickly. Uh, three. Okay. But they got to answer a show trivia question to show that they have been listening to the program today. Line three roulette style. What is your name, sir or madam? Uh, Kevin. Kevin, which way are you turning right now, left or right? I am turning left. And you're turning onto what street off of what street? We're, we're not sending the police or anything. You can make it up if you'd like. Hey, it's totally cool. Um, 465 westbound onto Harding Street on the southeast or southwest side. Okay, now can you give us a traffic update with the weather conditions, how everything's looking? Uh, roads are wet. A um, little bit of a heavy mist. Uh, traffic right now is slightly heavy, just going through the construction zone. Okay, uh, now we ask that you please, uh, you know, hands at the 10 and 2 position because safety is paramount. How long have you been listening to the program today, Kevin, just out of curiosity? Um, I just left uh, Lawrence Central High School, uh, heading home to get my daughter, so maybe about 20 minutes. Okay, so we're going to ask you a trivia question. If you've been listening for 20 minutes, you probably didn't hear the show 
earlier today. So would you like a pertinent to today trivia question or a lifestyle trivia question about one of the three of us in order to secure your winnings here? Um, let's do... Uh, let's go ahead and do the lifestyle one. Okay. I will ask you a question about Eddie Garrison, who is the CEO of the company here at Quarrying Company. Um, so I'm going to ask you, it's a two-part question. Either of the two, Kevin, will secure you on your way to Royal Penn. You ready? Okay. Uh, Eddie attended what high school where he played what high school sport? Unfortunately, I don't know that answer. Okay, how about this? Uh, Eddie is a Husky fellow, but his girlfriend actually said that instead of Husky, he is rather this term, which means portly. (laughs) What would it be? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? (laughs) Eddie's girlfriend, when noticing that he'd uh, put on a little weight, instead of saying that he'd put on weight, she listed him as this word, which means Husky or portly, but in a kinder fashion. Um... Stocky. That's a very good guess. Uh, Jimmy's favorite NFL team is who? Uh, the Bears. Ooh. Next mm. caller. Man, we got to let that one slide. That's All right, tough. who's who's, uh, who's next? I don't know. I kept it roulette style. What line are we on here? We have one, two, four, and five. Sorry, Kevin. Appreciate you listening, by the way. Uh, we'll go line four. Roulette style on line four. You are on the air. What is your name, please? Shane. Shane again? Same Shane as earlier? No. Okay. Uh, All right. Uh, Shane, would you like a lifestyle question, or how long have you been listening to the program today? Most of the day. Let's go today. Okay. This is a pretty easy one. You ready, Shane? Yep. A potential life goal of mine was met last night when I went to my mailbox and found that I had something in the mail. What was it? God, I wasn't listening to that. Shane, uh, we, you said you've been listening most of the day. I'm working, so I don't. I can't. What I can't what line listen. of work are you in, Shane? Uh, warehouse. Warehouse. Okay. All right. I'll give you a Call second. I'll, I'll give you a second question. You ready? Yes. Okay. Uh, Joel Embiid last night scored 70 points, which was a franchise high. But I had beef with it because I thought that from a marketing standpoint, they should have done what? He should have scored 76. There, there we is. go. All right, you're on your way to Royal Penn. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We got to take a break. We'll be back. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a athlete. This is my way. This is how I win. Today's Plays of the Day, just two plays, both local plays. We'll start first with the Pacers as they welcome in the Denver Nuggets. Give me Pascal Siakam, over 21 and a half total points tonight for your Indiana Pacers. Purdue hosts Michigan. It's going to be a scorching affair for Purdue. Leg the 17 and a half on the Purdue Boilermakers as they welcome in the Wolverines. That's right. No scoops. What, what is laying leg? points today. What, what is so leg? they are favored by 17 and a half, so I'm laying 17 and a half. Lay. You, you said, said leg. leg. I, did, I said leg? Okay, I apologize. Yeah. Laying. Laying 17 and a half. They're favored by 17 and a half. We're taking the Boilers going away against the Wolverines at Mackey. Eddie, we, anything? No? What's Purdue's team total? You've got the book open. Purdue's individual. I need to look for it for a second. Jake, I mean to cut you off. Jake, speak while he looks. <laughs> well, what I have has nothing to do with this, so I will let you guys flush out G- game, this game total. so smooth segment so far. <laughs> game total is over under 152 is the total for Purdue straight up 
85 and a half is their total points. I'm not touching it. All right. So Eddie's staying away from plays today. Yeah, I would. They're not going to go over 85 and a half. Uh, Eddie, do you have the breaking news sounder? Would you like to do the honors, Eddie Garrison, or would you like me to do so? You can do so this time. The Milwaukee Bucks, who currently sit second in the Eastern Conference, have dismissed head coach Adrian Griffin. That news just coming out in the last few minutes. That is peculiar because Milwaukee at 30 and 13. So it's not like they've had some massively underachieved year. Um, of course, you never know behind the scenes what could be going on. Looking at Milwaukee's recent play, they have won five of their last six. Two-game winning streak. And a two-game winning streak. Of course, that's over Detroit, so that really only yeah. counts as a quarter, right? <laughs> yeah, but They have to doctor that in the standings. It's a <laughs> tough right. exercise that's right. for the NBA office. First name, by the way, in the rumor mill from Crispy Haynes to maybe get that job. Anybody? Anybody? Okay, hold on. This is a current head coach? Or I, I'm sorry, like a current coach on somebody else? They can't take somebody no, from it, somebody's it staff is, right it is, a, it is an available coach out there in the world. I know this answer, by the way. All right. Is it a big name? Yes. Mm-hmm. Big name for this era, yes. Mm-hmm. As coached recently. Stop giving him hints. That's fine. I'll, I'm done with hints. So this is somebody who, I don't know why I'm blanking. When you say his coach recently, did they leave under, like on top type thing? No, they no. were they were canned. Are they thought of as, are they a big name because of outside of coaching or because of their coaching success? They have won an NBA title. Now go ahead, hit me. Doc Rivers. Doc Rivers has won an NBA title? Celtics 08. That's right. I forgot he was with Boston. Wow, he goes back that far. Doesn't he have more? I mean, he's missed at a lot of spots since then. But doesn't Doc Rivers? What What is the stat with him? Like he's he's lost more game sevens than anybody. Or, I think that I is can't right. Remember what it was? Yeah. Anyway, I mean, that's just from Crispy Haynes. Strongly consider Doc Rivers as Milwaukee Bucks will do so. League source. I do like well. Doc Rivers. Yeah. I mean, I look. You mentioned it at this stage. I don't know what Milwaukee wants or specifically needs, but they're right there with Boston in terms of top of the east and additionally there's a lot of pressure on that front office to make the dame trade work because this is your move to extend and capitalize on the prime of Giannis Antetokounmpo that's why you go and get dame bringing in doc I think you would hope is enough to guide you and get you back to a title you know the um if that happens that's just a report right now it it does make you wonder Maybe it's unfair to speculate, but it makes you wonder if there wasn't something that happened like behind the scenes. I mean, that is a peculiar and totally out of left field, it would seem, ostering, right? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I I follow the NBA relatively closely. I would tip the cap to Eddie. I feel like he's involved more on a nightly basis than I am, but that does catch me by surprise. I feel like it's always whatever team LeBron's on where you expect a coach to be gone midseason like that abruptly. I will say it is a bit surprising that the move happened in the middle of his first season. Typically, if they didn't like it, they'd you know at least let him get through the All-Star break, discover anything, and then work it out the rest of the way. But I know things were not going well in Milwaukee, at least in terms of fourth quarters, because it seemed like every time the team was in a relatively close game late, they would lose because of the inability of Adrian Griffin to to design something open for them to uh, get an easy look late. So I wonder if a lot of those things internally just spilled over to the point where it's like, hey, I think it's time to move on and see I mean, if there's somebody else out there. Midway, or, you know, two-thirds of the way through a year, though, 
when you're right. Seven, going 30 17. and 13. Now, here's a better question. It's like Atlanta a few years ago when they fired, I can't even remember who the coach was down there, That and Nate McMillan replaced him, and they end up going to the playoffs and win a series, lose to the Knicks into the garden. Maybe the Bucks called Nate Bjorkman. Okay. Boy. Here's a question for you. You ready? Go on. If a team is so the the Milwaukee Bucks are thirty and thirteen, okay. Let's say they win their next game and they're thirty one and thirteen. How many games over five hundred are they? If you're thirty one and thirteen, you are how many games over five hundred? Eighteen games oh, we over five hundred. Did this with baseball? Yeah, uh, you're eighteen games over. Yeah. I would tend to agree with you guys, but technically, wouldn't it be nine? Because that means you've played 44 games, and at 500, you would be 22 and 22. So you are nine games above the 500 mark, right? You and I had this conversation towards the end of the baseball season, and I think well, we agreed and disagreed that it's... What am I scooping stuff in? What am I scooping? <laughs> we were scoop? laying today, by JMB. the way. We're laying. Well, if a team is, for me. I haven't if done a team that in a long time. 31 and 13, huh? If a team is 31 and 13, they are how many games over 500? Oh Jesus! I didn't. I don't do math, dude. Um, I don't know how many eight to eighteen. Okay, but that's the natural answer. But it, but at forty four games, a five hundred mark is twenty two and twenty. What in the world is so this? Would it be a nine game difference? What did I walk into? I'm gonna go back to the bathroom. <laughs> uh, I finally got in and around here. I've never seen so many people in the stalls in my life on these two floors here. Well, there's only well, there are only three bathrooms in the entire building, I'm basically. You, I'm gonna tell you the the. By the way, on computers. I don't know what to eat every day, boy. <laughs> to your answer of 18 uh, of this room, not excluding James, wonderful James Adams over there, but three of us think that you are correct in 18, and one of us thinks that... Ah. No, I... I, uh, he, Jake I doesn't think I that's prefaced, wrong. I'm sorry. I, I prefaced I, it with... I misrepresented that. What's this Halliburton guy situation with, here? What happened to him? Is he all right? Um, Halliburton's going to miss three games. Could be more than that. It's a question of whether or not it was retweaked in the Portland game or whether they simply realized after the Portland game, you know what, maybe this was too fast. Ah. Uh, maybe it was so too fast. The entirety of the Portland game, the whole thing. You know, did you notice Kevin Bowen posted? I there saw was, there was it. A yeah. play I that, saw it during Quinn. I think Quinn remarked about it. Quinn Quinn on the broadcast said, Did he come up a little bit gimpy after that particular play when he walked to the free throw line. So Quinn actually mentioned. He Shout did out to kind Quinn. of look like he was favoring it when he went to the free throw line. Yeah. Kind of makes you wonder. That's too bad. It does make you bad wonder. Bad stretch. Um, it, it's tough. Look, it's a tough week, right? I mean, you got Denver. You got... Um, Lose eight of nine with this stretch right here. That's not good. The fact it's only all. Philly, three games, Phoenix, though. and then Memphis. Well, you know, and listen, I'm in. We're all in it for the fans. That's what the bummer is. I mean, you get Denver, you get Philly, seventy points by Embiid. You get the Phoenix, and then you get Memphis coming up on Sunday. This is supposed to be a good time. You get Pascal Siakam, and instead, again, we're jacking around with injuries. That's all we ever do around here is jack around with injuries. And hopefully this is really on the short end of time and what Rick said was accurate. But when has that – like the whole Halliburton coming back early was like this phenomenon that we got here because normally well, you're what done we don't for the know, season. John, is did they push him back too early with Portland, right? Or or was it something I, I would that, guess he pushed himself back. Right. That's my guess. Right I, I would agree and, with that. But, and, but you're also in charge of – And it's also yeah. possible that they didn't know how it was going to respond until they got him out. I mean, yeah. in other words, he could right. have waited six months right. and they still didn't know – 
how it was going to respond until they until he was out there and they gave it a test run. No, and, and maybe maybe so, but you know, it still is going to be reflective of of decision making and why you didn't wait a little bit longer because it turns out you didn't even win that Portland game, which you know magnifies the decision and now the bummer of the time that he's going to miss. Too bad. That stinks. I like your T-shirt. Deliciously different taste of Big Red, which also gives you kidney stones. So have a drink. <laughs> That's because <laughs> you ever passed a kidney stone, That's Jake? If you drink. You ever passed a kidney stone? If you drink three it's gallons like, you ever, a day. You ever try to shoot a burr <laughs> out of yes? Shoot a burr. You ever try to urinate a burr? I tried. That's what but feels the really good. Were all full. Yes. <laughs> there was I passed, nothing I could do. I passed a stone during the halftime of when I was a sophomore of a high school basketball game against Shackaback. Did you play in the second I half? I thought I had an STD, but I'd never had intercourse, so I didn't. Okay. But I, th- I said, what is this? Cause in, and then I scored 11 points in the second half. So It was your flu game? So you played. The I thought first- I caught an STD from the toilet seat. You played stone the game? first half with, with the stone, is that right? Uh, with, with the stone, 11 points The stone points was the after. only thing you passed, right? Well, my coach at the time said, you are so fat and out of shape at the half. And I said, no, it's not that. Something just came out of me here. And it's very unusual in this place in which something came out of me here is that the you only had one kidney stone huh you only had no i had a variety i had a whole i like the gravel pit where fred flintstone worked that's what i had right there (laughs) fair enough (laughs) all from big red (laughs) i love you big red that intellectual conversation (laughs) continuing